What's up, everybody? This is Wayne, and this is the Green Pill Podcast. And it might be the last Green Pill Podcast, the very last episode. And before you freak out, don't worry, because it doesn't mean we're going to stop podcasting. It just means we're going to rebrand this effort. And I don't want to give away what the name is going to be and the theme behind it, but I'll just say this. It's going to be a lot of fun. And as we move forward into something new, I thought it'd be fun and interesting for us to go back and continue exploring the past, my past, and the past and history of some of the movements that I hold most dear, including the environmental and animal rights movements. We had Ingrid Newkirk on the podcast a few weeks ago, a legendary figure in animal rights. And today we have really someone I consider a pioneer in especially farm animal advocacy and farm animal law, and that's Carter Dillard. Carter is the former director of litigation at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. He's one of the founders of a human rights organization. I got the terminology correct. <laughs> You'll see what I mean by terminology when you listen to the conversation. But he's the founder of a human rights organization called the Fair Start Movement. And, and Carter is someone whose life journey is fascinating, fascinating, because he went from working in the Department of Homeland Security, busting terrorists, and sometimes doing some things that he's not so supportive of now. But he went from working for the Department of Homeland Security for the George W. Bush administration in the early 2000s to representing animal rights activists and switching his career 180 degrees to working with individuals who are walking into factory farms without consent, documenting what was happening inside and taking some of the animals out. So this is someone who went from being a cop to being a criminal. But Carter also just has a lot of really interesting philosophical ideas about human rights, utilitarianism, effective altruism. And, and probably the, unexpectedly, the point of contention that was strongest in this conversation was having kids. Uh, many of you know I want to have kids. Carter isn't so fond, or I shouldn't say isn't so fond, but thinks there are a lot of dangers in human population that are not being considered, maybe even by people like me. And you'll see some sharp disagreement in this discussion as a result. But while there is some sharp disagreement, it's always fun to debate and discuss with somebody as smart as Carter. And at the end of the day, I think um, there's a lot of common ground. So really, you got to listen to the conversation. So as usual, without further ado, let's just move on to the conversation. Here's Carter Dillard. Carter, I am super excited to have this conversation because I am in one of the more unpopular movements from the mainstream perspective. People don't like vegans very much, as are you, which I'm excited to have your support for the animals longer than I've been an animal rights activist, and I hear more about that. But you are not just unpopular for one of your movements, but two of your movements. So you're you're you've got the lucky double <laughs> of being a part of another, I think, very important movement that's addressing some unpopular sentiments, namely trying to control the human population. Um, but before we talk about the substantive work, which you know I want to get into, I'm just wondering, like, how have you been doing the last couple of years? Because you're your entire adult life has been so intense, jumping back and forth between lawsuits for the animals, fighting to control populations so we can save the planet and the climate, working for the Department of Homeland Security, which not many activists have done. And, you know, last few years have disrupted a lot of people's lives. How did you hold up? I thought, I mean, I was, I'm fortunate. I think uh, I was able to see a lot of my privilege hmm. over the past couple of years in ways that I haven't been able to see it before. To be able to work remotely, uh, to have a well-paid job, have the luxury of doing activism, um, and meeting a lot of people that would have done the same and probably done a better job if they'd had the background and, quite frankly, the the position in the birth lottery that I got. So for yeah. me, I, honestly, I 
I, for me, it was a chance to see uh, how lucky I was and through things that over which I had no control, things I was just the beneficiary of. What do you mean by the birth lottery? I mean, I was born white, relatively well-to-do, privileged family. Uh, the assumption was I was, you know, they were going to pay for college. Um, I was going to do professional school. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a lot of the adverse childhood experiences that other people have that haunt them for life. Mm-hmm. Um, and in COVID, as the polls of um, the lucky and unlucky uh, separated and the disparity became worse, I was able to see some of that privilege. And um, and I think it's affected wh- where I see my role in the movements that we talked about. I think in some ways I uh, am as much an apologist uh, not an apologist. I would say as much someone to admit that there is a a massively inequitable structure at work behind everything. To admit that from someone who was in the position of privilege, uh, I'm I'm able to do that more than approaching it as a hero activist coming from some level of equity. And I feel like honestly, the past three years, as things got worse hmm. and as the climate crisis unfolds. Um, I'm seeing my role in this as something that's somewhat predetermined and also seeing it from a, you know, that I'm, I'm here to admit that the system is broken as somebody who was its beneficiary. Yeah. Uh, and, and to that end, I'll just say, I think, you know, I'm, I'm happy that you're having me on, but I also know that there are other voices, For sure. uh, better voices to tell these stories. I, I don't know about that. Your story's your own and you have some pretty compelling stories and two things I'll say about you that, uh, that I think reinforce what you just said are, are one despite the fact that you've done some really important stuff from like the early work you did with COK. Uh, I don't even remember, I don't know if you remember this article you published about false advertising in 2004, which I, I really think has changed the movement. I think, I was telling Andre on the way up here, he was asking me about your background. Um, Andre's the law student who's helped us out with the recording. Thank you very much, Andre. Thanks, Andre. I really think the false advertising approach to animal rights, I kind of attribute that to you. And I'll tell you a story about how I first learned about it from you. Because do you remember I did that furry babies case with you and aldf a long I do. time ago and that was a puppy milk case i not do a, not an animal agriculture case but still i mean the idea kind of came from you f- that we should try to yeah. approach this so and a lot of the investigations i've done since then were because yeah. of that experience <laughs> i had so really i have you to blame for all the lawsuits and prosecutions <laughs> I'm happy. facing today yeah. no um but the other thing i'd say and, and despite the fact that you've done all those things you've never been someone who's been in the public space in public um oh gosh we got someone uh, literally right outside the door. <laughs> All right, so we just had a, a wonderful bicyclist drive by. This is San Francisco, so you're going to have you know, some background music Freedom. for the podcast. Freedom in, in the city of, of love and animals. Um, so, But you've never been someone who sought the public spotlight. And, and I also think the other thing about you that I think was pretty distinctive for me, which I'm grateful for, was from the first time I talked to you, you're very open. Like you're not someone who's too dogmatic about the strategy you're taking. Uh, you're open to a lot of different ideas. You're open to critique. Um, you're open to new people and faces. And I think that's really important to cultivate in any good movement. Because if we're not open, one is strategically we can't innovate. We can't come up with new ideas. But secondly, just in terms of human capital and power, we cannot include all the people we need to include unless you're open. So I think you should give yourself a little more credit. Um, and I appreciate the fact that you see yourself as being in a position of privilege. But you've also used a lot of your privilege for good. Um, including, you know, helping us out for many years. So I appreciate it, man. Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, so actually, where did you grow up? Where were you born? I grew up in Palm Beach, Florida. Okay. About a mile from Donald Trump's current residence. Wow. 
Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a place with a lot of privilege. Okay. Uh, not a lot of respect for non-humans hmm. uh, or their ecologies. Yeah. Uh, at least not in practice. So what's the environment like there? Is it like swamps? Is it beaches? I guess it's Palm Beach. It can't be swamps. Yeah. It's called Palm Swamp. If (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think of Florida, I just think of beaches and swamps. That's all I know. It's kind of a funny place. It is. I mean, technically it's a barrier island. Huh. So on the East Coast, um, barrier islands are basically big sand drifts uh, that built up. and, um, And between them and the mainland, there's a saltwater sort of semi-brackish waterway that runs between them. And there's a series of barrier islands that run up the coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. And there was a great book called The Barefoot Mailman about how they would deliver mail at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, the mailman would walk barefoot along the beaches of the barrier island hmm. between Palm Beach and Miami to deliver the mail. And they talk, wow. tells these stories of... So just uh, like literally walking through a little tide pool. Yeah, and then crossing the the inlets with a boat on a rope that was attached between the two sides. And they tell the story of uh, alligators in the inner waterway and sharks on the ocean fighting for fish during uh, schooling season. I mean, it was the most beautiful environment you can imagine. And today, of course, it's decimated. Really? Uh, And Palm Beach is a bit of a wealthy enclave where people like to pretend they're on an island. They're just on a barrier island mm-hmm. that's attached to the mainland with three bridges. The thing that makes it an island is the wealth disparity between mm-hmm. it and the mainland. But it, it attracts people like Donald Trump uh, mm-hmm. because it has the mystique of a, of a at least an accessible tropical island when, mm-hmm. when in fact it's sort of just an environmental nightmare um, that was once more, once a much more beautiful and um, feckin' place. Yeah. There have been a lot of news stories in the last couple of months about alligator attacks. And it's just, it's so distressing to me because the number of people killed by alligators is so low. But every time it happens, everybody talks about it. It's just like, oh my gosh, like there are three people or four people are killed every year. And it's just compared to all the other sources of death, whether it's, you know, heart disease, metabolic disease, lack of healthcare, even in income inequality, yeah. driven in part by massive population growth. Yeah. You know, I mean, we don't talk about those things enough. And we talk about, the scary alligator too much. Yeah. Easy stuff to think about. Easy stuff to think about and clickbaity stuff. Yeah. So what was causing the environmental damage and it was growth. It was just too many people. I mean, this this state doesn't have a functional income tax. So it Mm -hmm. relies on property taxes, sales taxes and tourism. Mm -hmm. Um, And it attracts uh, growth. That's sort of um, the governor's mantra is to continue growth there and attracting uh, new residents. But of course, like anywhere with a carrying capacity, um, it's far exceeded what it could handle. And so um, it is a bit of a concrete nightmare at this mm-hmm. point. It doesn't have the environmental protections that, that California does. That's why um, Newsom and DeSantis are sort of playing at each other to see whose policies are more attractive to mm-hmm. up-and-coming voters. Um, in some ways, it, it is uh, like the uh, it's an alternative to California thinking in a lot of ways. Interesting. Yeah. Not that California is doing the best job on the no. environment in a lot of areas too, which is distressing because if Florida is yeah. worse than California, everything from the wildfires to, yeah. I mean, you've talked about this a lot with me, the, the water usage in California, yeah. Yeah. the fact that every year we've got another drought because we're feeding all the water to cows that we then consume and, you know, waste in a one to 500 ratio about the water we should be using versus yeah. the water we actually are using because it's all being fed to animals that then we then consume. But, um, so you were a kid, like what? provoked your environmental or animal consciousness was there something about 
your upbringing that led you to be more concerned about this than other people? Because you've now devoted your entire life to protecting these natural systems and animals. I mean, so I, I have a post hoc rationalization that, you know, even oh, as I a, love those. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I have a post hoc rationalization that it was, um, you know, that I always understood that nature, the non-human world, like this absence of human influence was the key to freedom. And so when we were out little kids playing in the, in the, the nature there, and there was nature on the island that's not there anymore because mm -hmm. the land value, it was all sold off and the, those areas were paved over. But at the time there were, there was a, you know, a lot of space where you sort of lose yourself in the Florida mm -hmm. wildlife. Um, that that was a great place to be free and that animal rice is just the logical extension of that. That's, of course, not a, what, what it was. When I was growing up, the thing that caused it was uh, tough love parenting. Really? I came home to tell my mom that I'd been uh, at show and tell, and a student had brought in antlers from a deer that they killed when they were hunting. And I didn't know much about hunting. I'd seen Bambi. But uh, I was interested, and so I wanted to ask my parents about this hunting thing that I was learning about in in show and tell. And um, my mom just said, if you ever kill an animal, I'll find that animal and I'll tie its carcass around your neck Holy for three shit. days. Uh, and I Holy thought about shit. that. That <laughs> is thought, intense. <laughs> I thought about that. <laughs> she was saying, and she was right. This is a woman, I, I mean, at the time, this is a... Well, she, she must have been an animal lover then. She was. So it's an okay. ode to context, right? For her, okay. veganism wasn't it, a context, wasn't part of the world she could imagine sure. as protecting animals because no one around her was doing it. This is probably what the seventies. It was the eighties. Eighties, okay. But she donated her furs to the shelter as like bedding for animals. Oh, I mean, she did some things that were symbolic, um, but in her mind, it was dishonoring the animal's life mm. in a way that should you should remember what you did. Sure, and the animal's life was worth more than simply forgetting it. Okay. So, so does I mean, that I mean she was okay with killing the animal as long as you like wore the carcass no. on your neck? Oh, no. I think she thought it was pun it was punishment. So you punishment. To you, wear the right. Yeah. This is what would dissuade people from doing okay. it. So if she was against it. She just yeah. thought the killing itself was like wrong. Exactly. If but they specific to hunting, she not eating animals for food in other contexts. Right. So that means a great lesson. Right. Okay. If you don't if you don't have the means to make the connection because people around you aren't making the connection. It's not something you can expect necessarily people to do yeah. to like to make these great leaps. But for her in hunting, it was more obvious. And so it yeah. was, the idea was, yeah, if you, uh, the animal's life was worth more than simply forgetting. And so, sure. so to not forget, this is what you would have to do. And it just made me think a lot about animal protection all the way through college. My sister, Courtney Dillard, who works at Mercy for Animals. Hmm. Um, Younger uh, or older? Courtney's two years older. Two years older, okay. She uh, joined PETA and started getting Ingrid's literature and sending it to me in college. And so... Went yeah. vegetarian, and yeah, it just made sense that I thought people that couldn't recognize feeling in animals, there was something wrong with them. Yeah. And but, I didn't want to be like them. So, I mean, there's got to be something more than just one interaction with your mom, though, because you, you're describing Palm Beach, I think, accurately as a pretty privileged place. I'm yeah. guessing it's relatively conservative, especially now. Maybe it is. less so in the 70s and 80s, or it I guess is. 80s. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think you were just born a little bit different? Did you have a connection with animals that was different than other kids? Did you have... You said you had a pretty comfortable upbringing, but you have an experience facing violence and oppression yourself that made you more open to this idea. Because I mean, a lot of people have experiences like that when the mom says, "Don't become a hunter. That's gross," or yeah. you know, "I don't like that." Because a lot of people, even people who eat animals and otherwise support at least financially slaughterhouses, don't like hunting. There's yeah. just something weird, especially with like the right-left split, like the yeah. right-wing people are the people who hunt. That's just kind of weird and. 
you know, rural and kind of gross. But they don't become animal rights activists and vegans who spend their entire lives right. trying to defend nature in wild spaces and wild animals and domesticated animals. So I, I want to just push a little harder on this and try to understand, like, what do you think it was? I mean, maybe you don't know what it was about you, but do you have a hypothesis as to why you went from there, just this one interaction with your mom? Sounds pretty intense. Is your mom still with us? She is. Okay. Is, yeah. she, is she vegan now? She's not. Okay. How does that go? Uh, we don't do talk, talk about, about it. it. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of us on this podcast and at the table may be able to relate to that. Yeah. But she's got to be an animal lover. She is. Okay. I mean, and, and I mean, that seems contradictory, but I think um, yeah. she does her work in other ways. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But just, I mean, so back to the original question before I riffed on your mom, which I, Mrs. Dillard, Fair. I'm sure you're a wonderful person. <laughs> not trying to call you out. Yeah. Not the intent of this podcast. We don't call people out on this podcast. Yeah. We bring people in. But I mean, there's got to be something else that happened to you that was different. Or I don't, really, was it really just that? I mean, I don't know if I could pinpoint it. I, were, I don't, you just, were you a weird kid in other ways? Because you do, I mean, from a mainstream perspective, I think it's awesome work. Yeah. And I, maybe, maybe weird is not the right word because I don't think it's weird to care about the suffering of other beings. But honestly, in a world where you're so indoctrinated to think of these other beings as just commodities for us to exploit, unfortunately, it is weird. Yeah. And I think in my experience, most people, even who become vegan, I always say it's, it's a kind of a minor miracle that anyone's even a vegan, much right. less an activist. Right. Because in a world where every day you go to school lunch and they're feeding you dairy and, and you know hamburgers and pizza, every television commercial is about McDonald's or Burger King. Your kids are... Uh, friends with everyone who's going to KOC and you go to, I mean, I used to go to McDonald's and I'd love the little happy meals and the toy you get. I mean, every, every influence around you is telling you this is what we do and it's normal and it's good. And, and the people who break out of that conditioning, usually in my experience have something unusual yeah. about their lives. Is there anything unusual about you? I, so I didn't have an adverse childhood experience that would have like created a level of empathy in me because of something negative that mm. I experienced. Um, I think, I think maybe two things. One is one thing about growing up in Palm Beach is highly competitive huh. about how you should be uh, contributing back really? to society. And I think anyone that studies the arc of history will realize animal protection is the frontier of social justice. Um, quite frankly, if anything, it just should have come on 100 years ago because the climate crisis may yep. mean what's feasible is... Um, not sufficient, but yeah, I think there's literally a book written with that title <laughs> frontiers of justice by okay. Martha Nussbaum. I didn't know that. Yeah. Really, so you know, Martha Nussbaum, right? I do. Yeah. So she wrote a book called frontiers of justice mm. and she talks about three different frontiers. One of them is species membership. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. And I, I mean, I, and Kim Licka's work on this ah, stuff, amazing. but I, I, so didn't have an, I didn't have an negative experience, but I think the idea of wanting to contribute. And then to me, the way to contribute is to get ahead of the curve. And if the curve is pointed towards yeah. inclusivity of other species, wanting to be ahead of the curve is, is making a contribution. It's being competitive. It's getting ahead of other people. So I, I don't mean, if, if being weird is sort of beating the crowd by getting uh -huh. to the right place ahead of them, yeah. I don't think that's... Um, it's not a bad thing. I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... it's a, bad a, thing I mean, you might... I had friends who will make a lot of money on their hedge funds. Sure. But if you account for the costs, the true costs that they created to oh, make yeah. that money, they actually created more harm than good. Yeah. So I'm beating them in one sense, even yeah. though a lot of people wouldn't recognize it. Yeah. But then you, you not know. Not quite as wealthy as your hedge fund friends from That's Palm true. Beach, probably. Oh, <laughs> uh, not at all. <laughs> um, so so yeah, you, I would say, but I can't think about, I can't pinpoint can you an experience. What, what you just said about Palm Beach being a place where people were expected to give back? Because everything you said about Palm Beach up to this point, 
you know, they paved over all the natural spaces yeah. without giving a shit about the natural consequences. It's a very privileged place, yeah. conservative place. Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't think of Donald Trump as the sort of person sure. who's a paragon for giving back. I think of him as a person who takes. Yeah. He just takes and takes and takes and doesn't give anything back. So what do you think that came from? Or was it something distinct to just your community in Palm Beach? Or do you think it was something about the culture of the city? And no. how, did that, how did that happen? I think, we, I think you and I probably have a different meaning of what I mean by contribute. Okay. Um, because when I say competitive and you okay. were urged to contribute, you were urged to do something that was valuable mm. that other people weren't doing that somewhat set the pace. Now, contributing could be uh, based on you know what everyone perceives as value, like market value. Sure. So people would say Donald Trump and other people contributed because they're billionaires. It's okay, proof. So it's like status. Yeah, that's Contributing status. to the reputation of exactly. Palm Beach. By doing because something doing, that's badass, yeah. and everyone thinks, oh, Palm Beach is cool, because look at Carter Dillard, he did this, and yeah. look at Donald Trump, and he did that. You so know? it might not be altruistic, and okay. it might not I be see. empathetic. It could just be you want to be part okay. of something that's yeah, real, sense. and you know, you would, and, and you think at one point, everybody who's assessing their contribution based on wealth, once they're forced to accept that the costs outweigh yeah. the benefits they created of their billions, yeah. you'll be ahead of them. So I, I mean, perhaps it's not even empathy. Maybe yeah. it's just wanting to be part of something down the road that proves that everyone before you was wrong. Yeah. You know, I think honestly, th as much as I'd like to think that human beings can be motivated purely by altruistic <laughs> concern that, and I've, I've, I've talked about this quite a bit, just wrote a blog post that mentions this to certain, some extent. And I gave a talk at Yale a couple of years ago about this. We have to realign the incentive structure of human civilization towards compassion so that the cool thing to do, the yeah. thing that actually gives you status and then we acknowledge collectively. And there's, there's a negative side of that. Like, Oh my God, that's so vain and ridiculous. And can we evolve beyond caring what other people think? But then there's another side of that you can, you can describe in a more positive way, which is that we do the things that our community acknowledges are good, you know, and that's not a bad thing. And it's, it's not just vanity. It's, it's just about my desire to do things that help the community around me and that right. the community around me sees as helpful. And, in Palm Beach, there are probably a lot of people who thought being in a hedge fund or becoming someone like Donald Trump, a billionaire who just destroys everyone around him, was a good thing for the community. In fact, that's, that's the way you described it to me. It's like a status thing where, oh, everybody in Palm Beach benefits when there's an amazing guy like Donald Trump, even if he's actually causing harm to the world. And if we could realign the incentives, starting at the local level, you know, because I think everything starts at the bottom up, so that really people do see the high status thing, the cool thing to do as doing something like what you did then the entire world would become a better place. And I actually think we're both lawyers. I, we haven't even mentioned that yet, that Carter's a lawyer, legal scholar, done some really, really important scholarship in addition to being director of litigation at the Illinois Legal Defense Fund for many years. I think the law has some positive examples of this. And the example I always give is both the academy, right? There are a lot of people going to the academy make much less money mm -hmm. with the idea. I mean, obviously the reality is often very different. The academy, meaning academia, being a scholar mm -hmm. or a teacher at a law school, there's a lot of vanity and power politics and, you know, reputation seeking in the, in the legal academy. But the spirit of it is still just let's develop knowledge for people. Let's teach the next generation. And people take less money to do that than right. going to work for a big law firm. And also judges. I'm not the biggest fan of the judiciary right now. and I think a lot of people around the country are not. Yeah. But the legal profession is an example of people going to become judges, making much less money because they know they're serving their community, at least in theory. And of course, the service isn't perfect. We're seeing with Dobbs and even in the cases that I'm involved in, the judiciary is a very flawed institution. But conceptually, we could get it right because it's not just about selfishness. What lawyers choose to do, and this is pretty rare, what lawyers choose to do among all the professions, like in a lot of professions, going to econ, you know, the higher paying professions are the high status professions. But law is an exception to this, where the high status profession, if you're like a great law student, 
going to become a law professor, going to become a judge is sort of what we aspire to do yeah. more than just make money. I mean, what's your thought on that? Do you think that's right or? <laughs> no, I mean, uh, I mean, you, I'm, the people that I know that go into social justice, legal practice, academy, they are all definitely choosing to make a lot less money and, mm -hmm. and, and probably most of the circles they run uh, occupy a lower rank than they would if they went into big law firms mm. um, or other positions, some of the startups and tech mm. that a lot of my friends went to. So, and I mean, right, I can Lower only, rank, you mean lower status? Lower status. Really? So you yeah. think like someone like Justin Marceau? I mean, know, so... I, I actually think, I mean, he's, he makes much less than he could, mm -hmm. but my guess is people at law firms aspire to be someone like him. They think he's a higher status person. He's a professor. He's doing cool work that's in the media. No? I would hope, I mean, I would, Some hope, of them. I would hope that's the case, but to the extent that animal law is still marginalized, I still think it, I think it yeah. might be a long way out. I mean, for, I, I would think today the, the legal heroes are the ones fighting to, to restore Roe more so than the, the animal advocates. Yeah, that's fair. That's but fair. to your point, I mean, to your point about, the, about whether you can sort of realign incentives to get towards compassion, it's, it, it's also simply accounting correctly for costs and benefits because somebody like Donald Trump or anyone else that made a lot of money may look like they won the race, but if the costs mm -hmm. that they imposed ruined the race for everybody, and that's yeah. what the climate crisis is, mm -hmm. everybody will suffer different levels, but if the whole process ruined the race, they haven't contributed. Yeah. They haven't added anything of value. They just wrote a system that didn't correctly appropriate costs and benefits. Yeah. And so I mean, to, the, to your original point, I, it doesn't have to be altruism. You could simply want to be the one that was right yep. ahead of everyone else. Uh, but a lot of animal advocates may also just have some form of empathy, heightened empathy, that could be for lots of reasons that they wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I think to bring it back to what you were just talking about, I think... Uh, it, it would have to be altruism that accounts for some of what we do, mm -hmm. but definitely self-serving desire yeah. for recognition for having truly added value. Yeah. That's probably another component of it. Yeah. As well as empathy. You know, that was a very refreshingly honest answer. Because <laughs> very few people, I mean, granted, it was a very thoughtful and academic answer too about status competition yeah. and the recognition we all desire, but very few people admit that, yeah, social influence affects me, you yeah. know, even, even in some positive direction. Cause I'm very glad that, you know, social influence in Paul Beach led you <laughs> to try and get ahead of the curve and say, Hey, what is the next frontier? And it's going to be animal rights. But very few people would admit that, you know, when you ask people there, I think there's actually a lot of survey research on this. When you ask people, what are the things that influence you in life? Like yeah. admitting that other people like I'm, I'm someone who's a follower. I listen to what other people say. That's like yeah. the last thing, especially in the United States. I think <laughs> my guess is if you did surveys in China, it would yeah. be different. People would be more willing to acknowledge, yeah, I'm yeah. a creature of my community. I serve my community. I do what my community wants me to do. But in the West, in, in America in particular, like this rugged individualism, everyone likes to think like, I'm completely independent of everyone. I'm just going to decide what my vision is of the world and I will go create it. Like the, the Ayn Rand type John Galt who just makes the world um, not many people will say like, you know, part of what I did is because the society around me, you know, encouraged me to do it. Or I thought this would be something that would be acknowledged by the people around me. I mean, it's hard to think of value in a way that other people wouldn't value it. Mm -hmm. I, and that's what I'm really glad you mentioned Rand because I always found it was hilarious when I read The Fountainhead. She wanted to create a character that went off and did what he did um, despite everybody's uh, urging against him and, and built this empire based on his own. Yeah. 
uh, capability. But the only thing that made that character valuable was the fact that people began to value yep. his architecture. Yeah, they liked his buildings. They wanted to live in them. They wanted he to was completely them. contingent on the crowd. Yeah, you're right. And of course, Rand missed that everyone in her stories would have come from some beginning for yeah, which she for never sure. accounted. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, I, I can't imagine that the human brain can conceive of value in a way that they don't yeah. look around and hope that other people value it. Yeah. It does not surprise me at all that you've read The Fountainhead and you thought about it. And actually, one of the lessons you can learn from Carter's life is read a lot of stuff and have a diverse knowledge base. Because I think one of the reasons you come up with new ideas for the animal rights movement and other movements, like we'll talk about the movement to, I mean, what do you call the the kind of kind of the population control movement? I don't even know if that's the right term. What's the term you use? No. Um I mean, so honestly, I would just call it human rights. Human rights. Uh, if you were investing in every child. That's very good strategic marketing. Carter. Well, <laughs> <laughs> You're already recognizing the point I made at the beginning of the podcast, which is that you're not that popular. <laughs> that's true. I'm trying to improve like, that. Actually, it's the one thing that's maybe less popular than, than animal it rights. It is less veganism, popular. Yeah. Is telling people they can't have kids. <laughs> I, get, I get thrown out of big parties for being vegan, and I get thrown oh, out of no. vegan parties for talking for about this. <laughs> and then I'm just by myself. Oh, no. Like, Poor Carter. Looking for anyone. <laughs> Yeah, hoping I, I don't care. I always talk to you, Carter, even yeah. if I disagree with you. And I do disagree with you about some of this stuff. Then I'll I, prove that Ram was right because I'm doing it because nobody, <laughs> no even despite anyone caring no, about you. it, I know. Uh, um, it Honestly, it is human rights. If you, for one, populations reducing people to numbers, sure. that's wrong. Uh, yeah. It's much more qualitative than it is quantitative. Um, secondly, the children's well, rights... Wait, can, can you just expand upon that? What sure. do you mean by it's much more qualitative? I think I understand what you mean, but... Yeah. What, you're talking do you, about a, what do you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, when you're talking about a group of people, yeah. you're not talking about a number. You're talking about power relations, mm -hmm. their quality of life, their equity, their civic capacity, things that are generally considered measured through qualitative sure. assessments. So the problem is that the people that recognized the growth in human numbers as problematic were all scientists. Mm -hmm. Paul Ehrlich biologists. These were scientists in the middle of the 20th century mm -hmm. and also economists. Sure. And they were used to reducing people to numbers. Mm -hmm. They were not political theorists. They were not legal theorists. And so the framing became one of framing them as numbers and population. And the problem with that is when you're talking about controlling a population, A, it sounds terrible. It's very top down. Secondly, it's demeaning to the people that you're talking about. Thirdly, it brings up horrific instances in history sure. of like racist eugenics. eugenics. Of yeah. Crazy, so I, stuff. Yeah. and framing matters, mm -hmm. Lake off. So you have to, I think you, you, you don't want to frame it for marketing purposes. You want to frame it correctly. The children's rights convention was the codification of standards that people had thought about from the middle of the 20th century. This is what children need to develop into self-serving, uh, self-sufficient democratic citizens. Had we invested sufficient resources in children beginning to the middle of the 20th century to achieve that standard, we would have never arced as high as we did in terms mm -hmm. of numbers. So just a purely a, a human rights-based strategy of investing in children. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We didn't do that. So I honestly, I just think of, of what we're talking about as human rights. If you were yeah. giving humans the right to a natural environment, an effective voice in smaller democracies, and investment as they're growing up to give them equal opportunities in life. You yeah. wouldn't have a situation where human numbers are blowing their carrying capacities, sure. atmospheric carrying capacities the way we are now. Yeah. So uh, yeah, fair start is part of a human rights movement. It just happens to be the first human right because sure. humans 
that's the first concept in human rights. Where do mm-hmm. they come from? Well, they don't yeah. fall from the sky. So it's, I, I don't want to cons- start as the organization. You yeah. Sorry, I'm jumping around, yeah. but it's, okay. uh, it's, it's not, I wouldn't call it population control. I call it human rights. And our, okay. our contribution to that conversation is to reorient the system to the first right, which we consider to be a fair start in life. Sure. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I, it's, it's pretty interesting. I had not thought about this until this conversation, but the way you compared Paul Ehrlich's position, yeah. which I mean, very famous guy wrote the population bomb. I he think did. it was. Yeah. yeah. And, Made a lot of bad predictions, he in did. addition to having, I think, bad yeah. messaging, because obviously yeah. he did not have much success in controlling the population growth, or focusing on quality rather than quantity. Right. But I never thought about this, but the way you described it, it's like Ehrlich's approach is very top-down, yeah. and your approach is very bottom-up. Let's start with the dignity that's needed for each individual person, and conclude what the caring capacity of Earth is, and what we can do to ensure everybody gets the dignified life they deserve yeah. while Ehrlich was looking from the top down and just saying, there's too many people. Let's get rid of some of them. And I think it's it, like, those are very different approaches. Yeah. And my guess is yeah. it's not just a question of framing and narrative, That's right. but it actually leads you to different conclusions 100%. too. hundred okay. percent. So that, this is very interesting to me because I didn't yeah. know this about you. And it yeah. actually makes me, I was already supportive of the general framework, even though I'm going to make a terrible admission I that know. Carter already knows. <laughs> yeah. Andre, you're going to hate me for this. <laughs> I want to have kids. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't. But 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 I, I, don't, I agree with you about quality no, versus quantity, no. and I think I want to have one child. And I so and hopefully you don't hate me, Carter. I I want people to have children. I want them to have really? it as part. Yeah, one kid or I two want kids, them, five kids. Well, depends. <laughs> it depends how you structure it. If sure, you, okay. I want them to have it as part of a collective system where they all focus. D- big difference. Sure. Instead of it now, which it is now, based on parent desire. Uh-huh. I want the system to be based on what children need, mm, yeah. not what parents want. So if you participate in that system, if you exit the current system and you choose to be part of that child-centric system, the answer is, uh, if I wanted five children, you could. You might okay. need to do it as part of a tradable entitlement scheme sure. so that your five was being offset somewhere else, somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, by someone that didn't want any. Yep. Uh, but you could do it. Um, but you just need to be part of that collective. Yeah. Cause if everybody goes off into the current system and does whatever they want, we get what we get now and what we get now is not good. So how do you avoid, I mean, this entitlement system you're describing, yep. how do you avoid this dystopian society yeah. where the government's controlling who gets to have children and who doesn't like, you know, you already waved your hand at this eugenics problem, but yeah. since you're mentioning it now, that's like the thing that leaps to my mind sure. about an entitlement system where, one person who has five kids has to be offset by another person who has zero, or I guess maybe five couples that have zero. I mean, because yeah. we've seen dystopian systems like this. This is not just hypothetical. Like my yeah. parents' home country of China had a one-child yeah. policy that was very punitive and, and caused a lot of damage, just the psyche of the Chinese people yeah. by the massive like top-down control over who can have kids and who can't. Yeah. And of course, as is usually the case, you know, the rich and powerful people were able to have more kids and pay and use right. corruption to have three, four, five children. Well, it's always the poor who struggle even if one, you know, yeah. especially if you happen to have a girl instead of a boy. It caused a lot of problems with like, you know, infanticide, like people killing their, their female children because they knew our, our name will not be able to carry on. And of course, probably everyone at this table thinks who cares if your name doesn't carry on. But a lot of people in traditional China, it does matter a lot because yeah. you might have a history that goes back a thousand years and you think, man, if I don't have a child, that history's gone. It's, self, it's, it's completely gone. It's identity destroying. Yeah. So you kill your daughter. Yeah. You know? So like, how do we avoid that dystopian world if we're going to have entitlements to, to childbirth? Yeah. So, um, on a, so I guess I'll say three things. Okay. Uh, and I'll, I'll back up to the point. First, I want to excuse, 
you know, Ehrlich was a biologist. So you sure. have got to understand he was thinking of species versus species. So we didn't have human rights background training mm -hmm. to frame it in a different way. Yeah. Um, but I do think that's a nice clawback there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of you respect. Did a good for, job. Yeah. I have a lot of respect for, and the, the is he still alive? Yeah. And, and his, Stanford, right? his center at Stanford publishes a lot of our okay. work. Cool. Okay. So good, good clawback for sure. <laughs> um, so I want to be clear. I did that. most of the calling out of Paul Ehrlich. Carter mostly said good things to the record, Mr. Ehrlich, or yeah. Dr. Ehrlich, Professor Ehrlich, whatever the proper honorific is. Don't worry. Carter's on your side. I'm the one who's criticizing you. No. Fair he, enough. He, I, I will say, even though yeah. he made some bad predictions, I think yeah. he's a brilliant biologist who everybody should read. I mean, yeah. everyone should know his name. Go read his work because it's really important. So yeah. anyways, I interrupted. Continue. S All right. So China's policy had nothing to do with human rights. Mm -hmm. So the country has largely rejected, I mean, in, 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 in sort of lip service, it supports human rights, but in practice, it doesn't. And its policy was a reaction, an emergency reaction, to mass famine that had occurred in the country uh, because of food insecurity in the 20th century. So Man, it's terrible policy. Yeah. And, and, and like forcing all the professors to go work on farms yeah. where they don't know how to farm. And it, be and it began yeah. with Mao's urging women to have as many children as they could to grow a strong mm. China in the beginning of the 20th century. Well, they did. I actually didn't even know that. And it, yeah, it would, it was a huge pronatal pro-birth policy, hmm. uh, in the beginning of the 20th century that caused the population spike. Yeah. Um, and because to grow a strong China, sound familiar, it's happening today in a lot of countries. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I, it, I just, we, you want to contextualize what happened there to say it's not what we would do if we were designing an ideal human rights system that accounted for all mm -hmm. human rights. And you said this is the early 20th century he did yeah. this? So before he secured power. 1930s, 40s. 1930s. So basically when the civil war is raging and it's not clear who's going to win and be on top. He's there, there, was, there, was, yeah, right. there was already recordings of pronatal policy for a okay. bigger, unified, larger China. And this is, did this extend into the 50s and 60s too? I don't even know when the one-child policy began. When the famines occurred in the 1950s and 60s, 60s I think yeah. they'd already dropped okay. so a lot decided, of the pronatal. Okay, we're all starving to death. That's not a great job. They started a two-child policy, I think, in the 60s, and okay. then it evolved from there. One-child policy. Yeah, Susan Greenhalgh is the expert on this hmm, her books so to your to your point how would we do this without a dystopian Gattaca mm -hmm. uh, situation I like to think of the right Gattaca is a movie by the way it is a movie <laughs> it was a very bad <laughs> movie so it's how old I am I'm a little embarrassed that Carter mentioned it because it's a terrible movie but it terrible it's movie. okay Ethan Hawke it's okay it we love you even though you like Gattaca and you referenced it I, I like, could the name five a lot people of other... who watched it on this <laughs> right. that movie are not listening to this podcast so I yeah. just wanted to make sure people understand. I'm not one of the five people I've laughed at the movie because I tried watching and it's terrible yeah I'm a dork I could name <laughs> a lot of movies movies that I like that everyone would think I'm a dork for. Uh, the, I like to think of the right to speak freely. Mm. It has been sufficiently developed that people that live in communities where it's practiced correctly, they understand you have a room full of people. Everybody gets to speak. Everybody gets to speak some. We have a limited amount of time. This is how we contribute to the conversation. Don't talk to other people. Talk over <coughs> other people. Don't defame people. Don't incite riots. Don't distribute pornography to children. I mean, these... These things are obvious and internalized. I think if you created a system where people understood 
child-centric family planning, that children deserve and need these things. When you went to have your five, you would be part of a community where you're having to offset what you do against other people's needs. So if there were some family living in abject poverty that wanted to have one child, you would be in a community of obligation with these people. Hmm. Um, but it would take instant, sort of uh, creating the norms, imbuing the norms in people over a significant period of time to change the way they think about having children. Because right now, it's just simply a matter of personal privacy or autonomy. But you can't, you can never account for creating another person by excusing it as autonomous. It's mm -hmm. not, or you're just negating them. You're negating the future child. You're negating the community that's impacted. So I. So can you just clarify? Yeah. Does that mean you're saying these commitments are voluntary based on just community association? Yeah, I mean, because entitlement sounds stronger than that. It sounded like something, you know, you're, you get like almost like a token, and that yeah, gives I mean, you the right to have a child. And you're you're talking yeah. about something that's more loosey goosey. You know, we got a community. There's one well. Can't have too many people yeah. taking water from the well. I've got five kids. You've got one. Does this work? That sounds more like, all right, let's just voluntarily decide how many kids everyone's going to have and understand we impact each other's conduct. I think, well, so there are a lot of different perspectives on how you would do this. There okay. is a perspective um, put forward by, some, by a theorist, Alex Gossaries, who argues for a child credit trading system. Hmm. Everybody gets a credit or amount of credits based on carrying capacity of the planet, and they can trade those credits on an open market. Mm -hmm. um, problem with that is, how did you decide who gets credits, how many they get, and how their wealth impacts their ability to sure. trade away? So it's, a, yeah. it's really problematic. Yeah, I, Elon we, Musk has a thousand children and everyone else has zero. <laughs> right. <laughs> if the market gets messed up in the right way and there's enough inequality in the world, which we're kind of getting there. Exactly. To the point where I think everyone would kind of, like Elon Musk is probably willing to pay $10 million for credit. Right. You know? And he doesn't nothing, nothing to him and he can have a 12th child. That's right. 13th or whatever <laughs> it is. And everyone else is like, well, I can't pay rent. I, I better just sell my credit to Elon. And Gossary's point is, uh, I mean, it's, and you also, you'd have to account for why people get a credit. Mm -hmm. They'd have to get a credit because they have a, there's a human right to have children. So you'd have to account for what that right, how that right, what the right looks like. Hmm. And in practice, that system would destroy the right because people would be forced to trade away their rights. Sure. They wouldn't yeah. be inalienable. They'd be highly alienable. Yeah. Um, so you think there is a human right to have a child? Yeah. So, I mean, that our system. That me. I didn't know let that. Me, let me, because you jumped in to say, I want to think about having, or I wouldn't have five. I wanted to say that there is a system that people think about that where you could have five hmm. in a tradable system. Fair start's a little different. Okay. Um, and our, the way that we would create a system short of a dystopian top-down system is very different. Um, Musk, I would note, does not adopt. He would buy those credits because he's pronatal eugenics mm -hmm. uh, on crack. He <laughs> wants to have his children, yeah. whom he probably thinks are Super genetically. Yeah. Well. yeah, right. So um, that's eugenics. And if they are that smart, it's interesting yeah. that they've all disowned their father. That's <laughs> Not all of them, but some of them. Yeah, have. that's pretty. You know, we're actually reaching out to those kids to really? speak out. We are. Wow. And also his that's former uh, paramours. Yeah. But we, we want, well, so I want to note something. You noted eugenics. People always think of it as population control. Sure. There's pronatal eugenics where you have rich often white people thinking that they should have lots of kids because mm -hmm. they're, they won't say that they're white supremacists, sure. but they clearly are. Yeah. So Elon being the prototypical example, the prototypical. Okay. Yeah. Um, so the, just briefly the, in a list of human rights, the fair start approach would be there's the, the list begins with one, right? That's the right to have children, not to be d confused with the right, not to have children, the right, not to have children, terminate a pregnancy, uh, use contraception is a right based on autonomy, mm -hmm. but 
when you move to having a child, you can't use autonomy as the basis. You have to use some other basis. Mm-hmm. We believe it's, it's the right to continue your life mm-hmm. um, genetically or by raising a child because you're adopting. Hmm. And that that life that you continue is better than yours. It's improved. That's what, the, that's what your value would be that you're protecting by having a that's child. That's a weird way to frame it. It is a weird way. <laughs> I'm I mean, surprised that's you frame it that it. way. Yeah. Because it's, it almost makes me think of kind of a weird kind of Hindu style. No, no. I'm, this is probably offensive yeah. to Hindu people. I want to say it anyways. Just like I'm extending my life through my child, like reincarnation through childbirth or something like that. Is that what you're trying to say? I think that's, that's at kind the, of, I think that's at the bottom of a lot of what, Parenthood, yes, especially genetic parenthood. Yeah, I don't think that's why I want to have kids. You know, even though I want to have biological children, partly because I don't think I can adopt anymore. Um, I'm a convicted felon, and I think there's some problems with adopting if you're a convicted felon, from what I understand. But to me, so like I watched the Thor movie recently. Have you seen the Thor movie? I haven't. It's a terrible movie. Don't watch it. But there's one good scene, and the good scene is at the end when Thor. Damn, I'm just totally going to spoil this. Shit. That's all right. right. Well, I'm going to tell you a spoiler. You can turn off the next 15 seconds if you really want to watch Thor. It's not even that much of a spoiler. And anyways, don't see the movie. Thor Ragnarok was great. Love and Thunder, terrible. It's so bad. Um, There's some good scenes in it, but it's pretty bad. So there's a scene at the end where Thor uh, takes in someone's child. Uh, The person dies. And the the power to me of of having a child or a companion animal. I mean, I'm sitting next to my my dog, Oliver, who's rescued from a dog meat farm. Is there something incredibly powerful about nurturing another being yeah. and and there's also something very powerful about nurturing another being from birth so you know their entire history you know because i've had dogs and cats including oliver who i don't know their entire history i don't know i have a sense of what the first year of his life is because he was from a dog meat farm and their lives are pretty bare and spartan mm-hmm. and awful but another dog natalie who um, had all this nasty scarring on her back she was a pit bull so we had some suspicions about what might have happened to her mm-hmm. before I adopted her, but I never knew. And she had all these traumas that I didn't understand. Like she was terrified of umbrellas. I had no idea why. And so every time it was raining really hard, we just had to go outside and get really wet because I couldn't go out with an umbrella. And it left these gaps in the story. And to me, and I think to a lot of parents, um, including one of our mutual friends, John, I don't think John's trying to extend his life through his child. I think there's something really precious about the family relationship and about both the care you showed each other, the permanence of your bonds in the lifetime history that you have connecting each other. Like there's something really profound about saying I began with you and I, I will end with you too, you know, because there's not much that's permanent in the world anymore. And one thing, again, I know there are a lot of families yeah. that, that break apart, whether it's husbands and wives, fathers and children, mothers and children, even I know there's a lot of terrible parents out there, but when it works, and like it worked really well with my family. I love my mom and dad yeah. so much. My mom passed. And it's one of the reasons I'm an animal rights activist. Yeah. Like that lifetime commitment of mutual care is so powerful. And just all the moments like of my life, just sitting together, you know, I'm struggling with my math homework. And my mom was always there for me. No matter, she was an entrepreneur. We started her own business, yeah. worked a full-time job beyond that, cleaned everything in the house, washed all the dishes, did all the laundry for everyone. And still every fucking night, if I needed help with my math homework at 9 p.m., she stopped everything to help me. Yeah. You know, something really precious about that. I'm not saying you can't do that with adopted children. You can, and maybe I'm a little, a bit of a hypocrite for not wanting adopted children beyond the fact that, you know, the felonies are a little Mm -hmm. bit of an obstacle, but I do think there is something special about saying from birth, we've been together and until death, we will be together in the future. 
No, you don't think that's part of the reason people want to have kids? I think, okay, I think that could explain the reason why people want to have kids. I don't think it accounts for the right to have children. Hmm. Because if you have a right, what you're saying is despite others' interests, maybe contrary interests, I'm allowed to act. Now, you've already named one limitation, which is you said sometimes it doesn't work well. Well, what if you know that a parent has a conviction for extreme child abuse? There Hmm. are dozens of cases of parents that torture their toddlers to death. And I could tell the stories. Um, Would those people... Uh, let's say they weren't in custody in some cases, let's say for whatever reason, uh, 10 years out, they're still fertile and they're on probation. Would they be entitled to have more children? Uh, despite our, despite the evidence that we have that some obligation they might have to their future children, they're not going to meet. But I, the reason I think that your reasons may not give basis for a right is that you could satisfy the from birth. You're talking about a relational mm-hmm. experience. What matters is the, this relationship. I think you could create a from birth, deep interpersonal relationship sufficiently with adoption hmm. without triggering these uh, competing words. obligations. Yeah, yeah, because I could find everyone that wanted to have a child. I could find all of these children in foster care. Yeah. of which there are way too many. Uh, Texas, despite its abortion ban, it's in a, it was under a federal receivership because it's a foster care system is so dysfunctional. Um, these children could be, we could have a system where they're placed at birth with people that want to have children. You would create those from the beginning loving relationships without triggering yeah. the same environmental um, and in some ways inequitable sure. problems. So, but that, but it, but if I say I have a right, despite those interests, I need a, I need a real core reason. Yeah, that makes sense. What's different in my situation is I have to do it biologically. Yeah. And so my bio- DNA and, that's it. and me, I can extend yeah. it in the future. Yeah. yeah. If I didn't think that Palm Beach, if I thought I, I'm an animal activist because I'm a good guy, yeah. not because I need to beat my dipshit billionaire friends at, who really did a good thing, um, parents may think, well, I love the relationship, but it may be yeah. if we trust biology, if we trust, uh, Stephen Hawking was asked, does biology really, science really explain everything? He said, mm-hmm. yes, of course. And the interviewer said, what about love? And he said, yes, that's easy, evolutionary biology. Hmm. And I think we would trick ourselves into thinking many things, but I think we have an evolutionary drive to continue, and that's okay. Genes, it could be yeah. made part of a right, but continuity of our lives stops at one or two. Yeah, yeah. That's the beauty, and it's an, it's an inherent built-in limitation yep. that doesn't require external limits from the government or anyone else. Yeah. If you're living having children in the way it really should be, which is continuing your life in a way where the life is improved over your own, you would accept an internal limit that would create a community that I'm talking about. Yeah. Couldn't mean you couldn't have five, but you'd need to have a reason that starts to depart that rationale, yeah. much the way that I'm gonna start to defame people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're suddenly operating outside that norm. Right, right, that's right, that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, okay, that makes sense. So I'll, I'll push back for two reasons yeah. on the ethic of care. Because I don't think my desire to have children, for example, is just about you know some yearning for immortality <laughs> to okay. extend my genes. Partly because I just don't think genetic selection works at the operation of the individual or yeah. you know even the individual consciousness. And this yeah. is like Richard Dawkins' classic right. 101, like right. selfish genes. You know, even yeah. our genes fight with each other. So mm-hmm. I don't think the individual necessarily wants to propagate. I think the genes want to propagate. I don't even want to. Mm-hmm. The genes that propagate have a selection advantage. And you go down that rabbit yeah. hole, but well, it's not. Just read The Selfish Gene. Yeah. It's a beautiful book. It's one of the few books that I think just everyone That's should read. That's fair. Um, but I'll push back on the ethical care. Because you're saying you know, people want to have kids because, and they only have a right to have kids. Because I actually think that that right to the extent exists is 
is almost like an, it's something we should abolish. I don't want people to be immortal. I think that's kind of a, yeah. not a, a worthy or morally praiseworthy attribute of our biology, even if it is true. Yeah. Even if it is true that every human being has this desire for yeah. mortality, it's like, no, just give it up, dude. You know, mm -hmm. Meditate a little, recognize yeah. your mortality, and you'll yeah. be okay. You don't need to have another kid, just meditate mm -hmm. some more. So I think the ethic of care is the basis for a right for two reasons. One is probably extends mostly to women. I think, but even to men to some extent, I think there's something about the biological process of bringing the binging to life that is part of the ethic of care. And even just like the hormones. So I'm going to butcher the science, I'm sure, to some degree. You might know it better than I do. My understanding is the childbirth process, even just the physical process in the last moments, has these massive hormonal responses in the human brain, mm -hmm. and in particular in the mom's brain, but mm -hmm. to some extent in the father's brain yeah. too, like vasopressin, yeah. oxytocin, mm. all the bonding hormones, the mm -hmm. love hormones. These are the hormones that, you know, when you're having sex with somebody or yeah. you fall in love, these very powerful hormones. Yeah. And there's no more powerful surge yeah. in these hormones than when the mom gives birth to a yeah. child, mm -hmm. right? So to the extent yeah. we want to value and elevate and give people the right to have these very powerful emotional experiences yeah. and this powerful caring relationship with another living creature, yeah. maybe this is one of the few biological powers. Now you might say, well, can you give someone a shot and get, adopt, let them adopt a child? Yeah. Maybe, but we're not there yet. Right now, I think one of the most powerful experiences for a lot of people, just from a biological perspective and a mm -hmm. hormonal perspective, is the process of childbirth, including pregnancy before that. Yeah. The second thing I'll say, which I think is, is probably not as compelling and maybe a little messed up, <laughs> and may actually be just another version of your desire for mortality, mm -hmm is I do think there's something about similarity that creates bonds, you know, not, not immortality. So like sure. even the fact like, In common. so I, I was, I think I was talking to you about this, Andre. So I, um, am, oh, I was talking to you about it too, just yeah. a few minutes ago. I've come to San Francisco partly because I want to be around Chinese people. And I'm not even sure why yeah. <laughs> I feel comfortable around Chinese people. Um, I love white people. I love Persian people. So Andre, Carter, you're both awesome. You're not Chinese. Carter's white. <laughs> you might not be able to guess that. You probably can because Carter Dillard sounds pretty white. It's it is. probably the most white sounding name in the animal rights movement. Sorry, Carter. It That's is. That's a bad thing. No, I'm kidding. Jefferson's my middle name. It's even worse. <laughs> even more white. No, we love you. Even though you're white, Carter, we love you. But there is something, and I don't even know if white people have this experience as much because this, it's just the dominant culture in the United mm -hmm. States. So you don't have this feeling of like, I'm not really part of this. But around Chinese people, you just feel this closeness. And it's like, part of you just feels like, I can relax yeah. when you're around Chinese people. And I think there's something about similarity that drives that. It's not just the particular cultural practices. It's the way we look. It's, you know, no one's going to think we all look the same here. Yeah. It's our hair colors the same. There's human beings are such visual animals and, yeah. but vision is, and just physical similarity is just one part of the bond. You know, yeah. there's cultural similarities, there's linguistic similarities, there's education. I mean, all sorts of things that connect you. And I do think, in my experience, and again, very limited experience, but I have, I, I have a lot of friends who have adopted children. Um, turns out Mormons adopt children a lot. Do you know yeah, this? They do. Yeah. So they, um, and I have a lot of Mormon friends. Actually, it's I, common in Christianity and a lot of, a lot really? of sex of Christianity in the United That's States. That's awesome. Yeah, actually, you know, a lot of like, a lot of the right-wing Republican people mm -hmm. that we hate have like adopted children from like terrible places and it's pretty praiseworthy. I mean, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head, probably because... I wash it out of my mind because I don't want to think positive yeah. things about all these Republicans. <laughs> but every time I see it, like John McCain, actually, he's one example. Like, I am not a fan of John McCain. He said a lot of racist shit about Chinese people. He called us gooks. Mm -hmm. um, he was a warmonger. There's so many reasons mm -hmm. I did not like John McCain. But he adopted a lot of children. Yeah. And that was a good thing. Um, but I will say, even when I've seen 
parents adopt children, mm-hmm. I've always seen like the adopted children just don't seem to have the same closeness, especially compared to biological children. Not, not my, maybe because there's certain norms. Maybe I'm propagating that, mm-hmm. that norm. That's one <laughs> of the reasons adopted children don't feel closest is because fucked up people like me say like, oh, you're not as close to your adopted children. So it's like, you know, chicken in the egg. Am I causing it or am I, is this a result of it? But I do think there's something about just even physical similarity, psychological similarity. And it's just, it's not that you want to clone of yourself, but there's something beautiful about coming together with another human being and creating someone who's a blend of the two of you, yeah. you know, and that, that creates an ethic of care that's special. Um, I'm going to make one counterpoint and I'll throw it back to you. And my yeah. counterpoint, the way I'm going to argue against myself is I love my dogs as much as you can possibly love anybody. And my cats, yeah. Sorry, Joni. Joni's over there. I love him too. But my dogs are not biologically related to me at all. Right. And also they're adopted and they've had random attributes. Yep. Like it is just a random draw because you don't know your dog very well until you take them. And I'm, it's not, sometimes people adopt their dogs and don't love them. But what I found, and I just blogged about this because I lost Lisa. Do you remember Lisa? My I do. Ball? Yeah. Yeah. I lost her. I met her ago. a while ago. Fucked up. It's a super fucked up situation. She died, heart attack, not that old, 13 years old. So I'm, Priya and I are both still honestly recovering from that because she was very important to us. One of the things Lisa taught me is um, it doesn't really matter almost what characteristics or even flaws somebody has. Like when you are really committed to them, you can find a way to love them in a very deep and profound way. Because Lisa was a kind of a fucked up dog. Mm-hmm. She like attacked other dogs, fucked up my hand so many times. Like I broke my hand punching her, trying to get her from killing a dog. Mm-hmm. So many terrible experiences. But she really taught me to love unconditionally. And I would be lucky to have a human child I loved as much as Lisa. You know, so, and I, and I think to myself, well, Lisa was not, did not have any of the attributes I would have thought, yeah. certainly some of mine. I mean, she's, first of all, she's a dog. Um, secondly, she hated working out and it was always a huge struggle to get her to work out. I love working out. I and mean, all sorts of things were different on, but I still found like it was one of the most profound nurturing and caring relationships in both ways. Like she nurtured and cared for me too. And so like part of me thinks, man, why do you want someone similar to you? Maybe you actually, you want someone who's totally unexpected and you can find this really beautiful, caring relationship. So my counter argument to the counter argument yeah. is I think it's different with human beings. Yeah. But anyways, so I mean, what do you think about all that? Do you think yeah. that has any merit? No, I think you're right. Well, <clears throat> let, me, let me, I guess it takes four, let me four things I yeah, want to say. Please. I don't, well, let me start by saying I don't have a response to the similarity argument for parenting. Yeah. I'd have to think about that. I never thought about that. So, um, really, that's yeah. surprising to me. Yeah, I'm surprised parents haven't told you this. Like your parents who are like well, feeling the, judged by you. <laughs> yeah. Do you have Do you have a lot of friends who are parents? I do. Really? Okay. Yeah, and I think it's because we Fair Start simply wanted to propose what the right to have children looks like. Mm. We said the current model, which is parent centric, and you choose to have the timing, spacing, and number of your choice in any conditions. You could have 10, you could have them in abject poverty where they're going to die in their first year. Have, you have full choice as parent to impact the future child and the environment with that child and the community with that child hmm. with no restrictions. We said that right is garbage, mm-hmm. nonsense. Yeah, it it was designed sense. to protect wealth mm-hmm. because if you actually thought about having children, you'd think about what the community owes your child and that's mm-hmm. what the elites did not want in the 20th century. So we critiqued that what right. What do you mean by that the elites didn't want that? Why wouldn't the elites want that? Because in when the 20th you, century? if the right to have children is personal, private, it's your decision, have as many as you want, but it's up to you, you're responsible for them. 
then the community is not obligated to them. And mm-hmm. poor people may not think, well, my child deserves at least equal opportunities with this wealthy child. That would have, the, the right mm-hmm. to have children properly interpreted would have broken down the wealth barrier. Okay. The 20th century, they did not want that. Okay. So the right to have children as a personal private matter was a means to protect wealth. It was not meant to protect autonomy because as we discussed, yep. you cannot use autonomy to defend having a child. So, so basically all, rich people didn't want other people to have that right. That's you know? right. They okay. didn't want those, they, they didn't would, want to have to pay. It would impinge on their ability to just accumulate more wealth and not worry and about pass it to their children. the impact on the community Which, as a whole. And they're, they're, regardless of whether you have the right to have children, their children are going to be fine. That's right. Right. Okay. Well, so, well, okay. and yeah, that makes sense. And parents today that I, I, you know, I love all my friends who have kids, but the ones that don't participate in collective solutions to the climate crisis think their kids are going to be fine because the wealth they accumulated will be used to float their children mm-hmm. above other people's kids. And Fair Start is, is meant to disabuse them of that notion because we're going mm-hmm. to make sure that wealth is moved to help all children. You said children. that's your friends who feel that way? Yeah. <laughs> I have plenty of friends. <laughs> you, you, I have, well, you don't uh, think very highly of your friends, Well, Carter. it's <laughs> funny. I don't... <laughs> my kids are going to be fine because I'm wealthy and they're going to float, literally float over the water. Everyone else drowns I, and my kids... Your friends I kept are assholes. My, <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I kept my friends from before my activism. Ah, okay. Is, so most of them are not vegan. Some are hunters. Some are, and I still... Really? We're still tight friends. And a lot of them, yeah, so I... Uh, but, you know... I've they, got non-vegan friends. I don't have any hunter friends. Oh, that's... <laughs> this, it is challenging. But I, it's yeah. good because this, I get to see the way people think and then we devise, devise our, our work around it. But to the, your point was, we think about it simply in terms of the right to have children. So even though there may be lots of reasons you would have children, it would only be some reasons that would qualify to support a right. They've got to be so strong that you can override other people's interests. That's mm-hmm. what the nature of a human right is. Sure. So we wanted to find the interest that was so strong it could override others. To your point, so the four points to respond to yours very quickly are... One, I had not thought about the the similarity uh, as a right to have children. I want to create people who are, I have the right to associate with people who are similar to me, and therefore that gives a right to genetic uh, parenthood. I mm-hmm. haven't thought about it, so I have to think about that and put that aside. To your point about... Does that sound stupid? Just out of, no. doesn't sound stupid. I have to really think... Maybe it's stupid. I don't know. <laughs> no. stupid. No, it doesn't. I mean, right. I, think of the, I think of the interest in joining a group... There's only one interest. Am I going to be able to keep my relative self-determination in this group? I don't mm-hmm. care. I mean, logically, I shouldn't care what they're like. I should care about whether they're going to protect my right to participate as an equal in that group. So I have to think about it. But the first, you're, it's a great point about the process of birth. Yeah, and how that creates Creating it. a relationship itself. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, if if the relationship is still a necessary condition of what makes it valuable, if you have eight kids, you're not going to be able to relate as a parent to each of the eight children in the same way that you would have to, if you just had one, you're not gonna have the time and energy to give to all of those children. So you're going to, there's something that's going to degrade your value with growth. So there may be a built in limit, even based on your value. I mean, that's kind of like saying, you know, if you're writing eight papers, you're not going to be able to exercise your right to free speech effectively for all eight because you're dividing your attention between eight papers. But I talk you're to still everyone exercising the same right when you write those papers or eight speeches or eight er, tweets, whatever it is. Everyone right? that I talked to who came from large families and they weren't romanticizing yeah. felt like they didn't get the attention they needed from their parents. Yeah, that's probably fair. 
Um, maybe the papers feel the same way. You know, maybe like, that's true. <laughs> maybe the people I like, write a lot. Like so the you're Cass not- <laughs> Sunstein's of the world are like each of his papers is thinking to myself, Cass, you didn't give me. Cass Sunstein's yeah. legal scholars written like a billion papers. Yeah, and then you've got Carter who's written ten, fifteen, and you got me who's written one. <laughs> <laughs> Yours is the best though. No, it's it's crap. It's, totally <laughs> it's not crap. crap. No, it's 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 only good because Cass put his name on it. But no, you're, it's you've good. written how many papers have you written? Maybe is it ten? Uh, right? About a dozen. Yeah, that, that, that's yeah. about right. Okay. Uh, so the, the last two points, yeah. so you, you asked about fair start and I don't want to leave it sort of hanging. The idea that you have a right because you can improve your life is part of it. The other obligation is you've got to meet the standard for the children's rights convention. So when you bring mm-hmm. the child in, they have to be born and raised in those conditions. Sure. Um, and that includes ecological conditions that are restorative environmentalism. What basically. is the children's rights convention? I've never even heard of this. This is I'm confessing my own ignorance now. Yeah. This um, is something that happened in the 20th century? Developed in the 20th century and it was sort of really came to force in the 19, late 80s and 90s. Only two countries have not ratified it, the United States and Somalia. Hmm. And um, Seriously? Yeah. The United States the United has ratified States Somalia. Yeah, the United States, the United States has oh a real problem God. with. There are so many examples yeah. like this where the U.S. is on the bottom well, of the pack. We it's have a terrible. solution to that that we proposed to the UNFPA. But I, the, the, if you met those conditions, uh, and that sort of covers the social, ecological, and the democratic conditions. Democracy is key to this because mm-hmm. you cannot be creating societies where people it's so bloated people don't have a voice, a functional sure. voice. And this isn't complex. You could use representative ratios mm-hmm. from every state constitution federal constitution and also statutes to actually tell you how many people you're allowed to have in your democracy mm-hmm. because you know what the ratio is for your representatives. But if you came to, if you use those, well, but couldn't you just add more representatives though? No, and, because you're never doing it fast enough capacity? to catch up with, with people. Yeah. The way you're, you're the people we call representatives today couldn't possibly represent the number of people sure. in their jurisdictions. Your vote is diluted to nothingness. But I'm just asking, point. why can't we just add from 435 to like 535 and then 700 and then 900? Because the, because the process, this is like China's Congress, sure. the process by which the, Democrat, the, the representative politics work at that stage, totally dysfunctional. Okay. It just becomes too large of a body to actually function. Correct. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. And that's, that, like, so that's like Robin Dunbar's work. I don't know if you're probably familiar with Dunbar's number. Yeah, that's 150 it. 150 people can that's it. Well, organize and, and have relationships. That's with also each other. so. Yeah. So what? Human happiness because you're part of a group. That's what Dunbar says yeah. is consistent with a voice in democracy. That's mm-hmm. what Rousseau says. You're only as good as the number of people in your community, mm-hmm. and that comports with. Uh, carrying capacity in the world, which sure. is the climate crisis we build. So it all. You forgot the, another great philosopher, Hillary Clinton. It takes yeah. a village. <laughs> Just kidding. If it takes all a vill- Hillary Clinton fans. Well, she got it wrong. I'm not actually a big supporter of Hillary Clinton, so don't worry. She, she got, got actually, it totally wrong. If it takes a yeah. village to raise a child, it takes a village to plan for one. Yeah. So she was late That's in the good. process. But I, the, I'll just yeah. end by saying that the fourth and final point. So if you were wanting to improve your life, and that gave you a right, and you met the conditions of the Children's Rights Convention, including ecological, democratic, and and. Uh, egalitarian or equal opportunity, um, you would have a right to have a child. Those are the, all the obligations, and that's your value. That How do you get that done in the world today? That's my final point. This is like, well, everyone wants to know, how do you get this done? Sure. The wealth that was made in the past 50, 60 years was made because we didn't invest in children. We treated them as labor. Mm-hmm. They were cheap labor. We didn't include the environmental costs that they would suffer, and we didn't include the cost of giving them equal opportunities in life. So that wealth was made in violation of human rights. We have a right to take that wealth hmm. uh, because it was made in violation of there. the fundamental human right. Mm-hmm. And we could distribute it as an incentive and entitlement, not just an incentive because the future children deserve it, 
to change the way people plan families. Incentives are incredibly powerful. They're effective. Uh, and you can encourage this idea of, hey, what we're after is a fair start. Delay until you're ready. Choose a smaller family. And make sure that the kid's getting a fair start. You could fund incentives that would get that done. And all we need to do, all we need is standing between us and bending the arc of growth from where it's headed now towards 10 and 11 billion, massive inequity and a degraded ecology by 2100. You could bend that arc towards 4.8 to 6 by 2100 hmm. by taking the money from the top yeah. and using it. Now the question is who's going to take that money and how we'd take it. Yeah. But that you, Carter, we're going right now. I mean, Let's that's go over to Elon's place. That's why I live in the Barry. He I believe in DXC. Home. He's yeah. homeless. We, <laughs> can go to, we can go to Mark Zuckerberg's place. Not too far from here. That's why I believe in DXC. Yeah. I mean, I, you let's <laughs> we'll go and take it. Well, you, as a lawyer, you come in, you think, Hey, yeah. this is the system. Sure. But at some point you realize the system is a, it's rigged. Sure. Yeah. Uh, to support power structures. Yeah. Hey buddy. Jones into that. Jones. He agrees with that. And you, uh, you exit it. That's my cat, for the record, everyone. There's Jones. not like a screaming human being with a torch <laughs> in the other room. That was my cat. It's a wealthy. Yeah. It's a wealthy person whose money we plan to use for. So, can, can you explain? You said you know this wealth has been yep. accumulated in violation yep. of the right of every child to live a dignified life, and so we need to tax them. I'm still unclear. How do you link the tax? Because it's not like I mean, you do have examples like Elon Musk that have yep. ten children, but even ten children. I mean, if you were to link childbirth to some wealth tax it's not like you'd ask for a billion dollars per child so how do we i'm just trying to yeah. understand what the linkage is between the right to a child to have a dignified life and the tax you're proposing what does this tax look like is it a wealth tax is it an income tax i mean so you well like all social change you probably have to start thin and okay. and enlarge so the easiest place to start is a child tax credit okay right now the child tax credit uh offers benefits to families making up to three hundred thousand dollars a mm. year and it gets <clears throat> pared down but you could eliminate all benefits that would encourage wealthy people to have children mm. and use those benefits to quadruple the benefits that you're giving to children at the lowest uh, means okay. end. And you could do it under an ethic of smaller families for everyone. Okay. That so you're sense. not encouraging uh, larger families. But what you are in encouraging is, is equity. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. The question though is, why do we have to use the current system? If the human right, the first human right is the right to a fair start, yeah. then the political process is subject to that right. Sure. How could you, and this is what we talked about, in the, we have an argument with, uh, we, we, there's an argument we're, we're having with some economists about what the baseline for assessing costs and benefits are. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't have a political system decide this is a cost and this is a benefit unless that system actually includes people, includes yeah, their voice, right? Yeah. So you're in including fact, animals in my view. And I think in your yeah. view too. So using family, systems. using yeah. family planning to create a system where people have meaningful input because they were raised yep. with equal opportunity and in smaller communities where they have a voice, that right may override government's authority to issue property rights. Hmm. So we may not need to use the child tax credit system. We can simply yeah. question why the government has the authority to give property rights yeah. to people in derogation of the right to actually operate as a functional society that can decide yeah. who has property rights. Yeah, I mean, this is something that most non-lawyers, and unfortunately most no lawyers don't even think about, but property is sort of a story. This yeah. is the fiction that the government tells us. Yeah. And, and I was listening to Yuval Noah Harari on, um, uh, on Steve Levitt's podcast. He just, Yuval Noah Harari is a philosopher at, I think, Hebrew University, wrote the book Sapiens, and yeah. huge animal rights supporter. Yeah. Um, but he, he was talking about how there's so many things in our life that are just stories. Yeah. They're just these fictions we tell. And, and one of those fictions is, 
is absolutely the idea of property, right? You know, the idea of currency, all these things that are just, they're, they're not necessarily bad fictions, but they're yeah. fictions. They're, they're just invented paradigms. Um, and actually with that, my little kitty, Joan, is howling. So I'm going to give him a little bit of food because yeah. he's, uh, he's going to keep howling until I give him something. And I, sure. I, I want to spare all of you the howling cat in the background. <laughs> so we'll come right back. All right. So we're back on the air. We're rock and rolling. Joan is happily eating his sadly non-vegan food for all of you who are going to get mad at me about that. I don't care. No, I do care. It's going to hurt me very much. So don't get mad at me because he's got a medicated diet. I got to give him non-vegan food. I have had a vegan cat for 16 years. Wow. That means I'm like vegan level five, I think. That's pretty so, high. I know. I'm very high up in the You're vegan. beyond arrest by the vegan place. I'm, I'm, yeah, beyond arrest. <laughs> I'm not even beyond arrest. I'm basically the vegan, vegan monarch. Like when you've got a vegan cat for 16 years, you're at the height of veganism. No. Uh, let's get back on the subject at hand. Yeah, there, there's a lot of things that are fictions. And I, I think, I mean, it's kind of weird to me that you're talking about rights because I always, in most of my conversations with you, and including this one, you've always struck me as a pretty utilitarian guy. <laughs> Um, meaning that you don't really think of the world in terms of rights. You just think about the world in terms of like what's going to make people happier and what's going to make people less happy, including non-human animals. Um, but I, I mean, a lot of people would say, and including, I think it was Bentham himself, who's, I don't know, he's one of my intellectual heroes. I don't know, if, is he one of your intellectual heroes? Jeremy uh, Bentham, not philosopher? so much. Not For so the much? reason I'll tell really? you after, yeah, okay, but answer your question. He's, he's one of my intellectual heroes because yeah. he predicted the rise yeah. of feminism, anti-racism in what, 1600? Yeah. You know, and, but also... When he predicted the rise of feminism and anti-racism, he also predicted the rise of anti-speciesism. He said there will come a day when people see animals and say, who cares if they have four legs instead of two or fur yeah. on their backs instead yeah. of bare skin? Yeah. The question is, can they suffer? You know, I totally butchered the quote. You can go read it in some paper or just Google it, Bentham Animal Rights. Um, and Bentham said rights are, I think it's um, nonsense on stilts. That's it. Right? So I'm a little surprised that you're yeah. talking about rights. Um, do you think of rights as like, moral truths that we just go find or is right just shorthand for some sort of political process that you think leads to a good policy? Yeah, no, I think it's moral truths. And it's that's why truths. I disagree with, with Bentham. Yeah. And I, so you are a rights person, not a utilitarian. I am. Yeah. Because I think, well, you know, <laughs> utilitarians can't be that everyone is all the time thinking, how can I maximize happiness? Yeah. Well, the, you, you would, it's rule oh, utility. Yeah, that sounds so fun. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> they get kidding. it wrong. <laughs> like yeah. there's a lot of people incapable of that kind of moral math. Yeah. They'd be constantly getting it wrong and running up against each other. Yeah. I think if it's true, and sometimes even killing each other. Yeah. If we can like maximize, ends, it's happiness. very much ends justify the means reasoning. That's yeah. a little dangerous. Yeah. Well, and I think it. I think it's the bedrock of liberal economics hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah, um, that's true. And excuses immorality in in favor of hedonism. But I, damn Carter, you got me there. <laughs> I just had myself <laughs> as a utilitarian, and Carter's like saying excusing immorality and hedonism, the bedrock of. I know who I'm talking economics. to. He's like. Coming to hard, Your guns blazing today. Sorry to all the utilitarians <laughs> out there, because I'm with you. We're all feeling the shame right now with Carter Judd coming after us. I, no, I'm kidding. But yeah. actually, you're, maybe you're not kidding, but I, I'm kidding. I think it's okay to be utilitarian for the record, and yeah. I have a little bit of utilitarianism in me. But I'm sorry, I interrupted. No, you're right. If you could, I mean, if you want to, to maximize human, if you want to maximize welfare, there's going to be rules. Sure. That you would agree to to do that. They're rule utilitarianism, mm -hmm. and honestly, I think that. Anything we do. Which is basically utilitarianism that says, okay, yeah. you can't make a snap judgment in every situation to, for example, kill someone and take two of their kidneys because you can save two lives by killing one. We've got a set of rule that says it, you don't kill because it's better 
to make a mistake in, in a sense in one case yeah. because establishing a rule that's right. allows for better outcomes that's overall. Right. That's correct. If Everybody, people are allowed to just kill everyone all the time, yeah. that creates a terrible society. It, that actually a, reduces utility. It's a safe bet. That's what we rule utilitarianism. That's right. For the record, that's the sort of utilitarianism yeah. I identify with. I'm not saying you should go kill people because <laughs> right. they have two kidneys or yeah. you know, or yeah. wipe it, out all the humans because dogs will be happier with all the resources. That's actually an argument I've heard by utilitarians. Yeah. Have you heard this argument? Yeah, that's, this that is what dogs, I'm talking about. We should make a planet yeah. of dogs because they're the happiest animals on the earth. <laughs> so wipe out all the other animals and make a planet of dogs. Yeah, I mean, it's a safe bet if you want to maximize welfare, that people should be able to speak freely. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Women should be able to terminate pregnancies because yeah. if they don't want to be a mother, it's not probably not going to go well. I mean, so there are rules. Bentham's, pro Bentham's objection, of course, was where do you get those rules? Mm -hmm. And he wanted to get, he wanted to say, and I think he was making what's called a naturalistic fallacy. He said, well, they're not rules existing in the universe. The rules are on paper and they were created by people. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an is. But how, what should the rule be? Rules are oughts, what they should be. I should do this. So oughts, are, I think we derive them from doing the right moral math. Mm -hmm. um, and so a great example of animal rights going awry is that people want to maximize pleasure. They do away with predators because predation and wildlife, low levels of welfare, high levels of suffering, mm -hmm. that would destroy the biosphere. Mm -hmm. So it's an example of why we have rules like yep. ecological rules that protect the ecology yeah. to save the world from like animal rights people going awry. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we wiping out all the sharks and <laughs> the, the, the coyotes and yeah. wolves of the world and, and people causing that, so much suffering. whose animal rights yeah. is based purely on welfare and not on autonomy. Yeah. They wouldn't afford those animals their own autonomous sure. life. They just yeah. view them as vessels for suffering. It's like a vapid form of animal rights. Yeah. No, there's an extreme version of this um, by someone who's actually a friend of mine. I, I may be misstating his view. Do you know Brian Tomasic? I don't. He's, a, he's like an ultra EA guy, effective altruist. Um, really one of the first, if you haven't heard of effective altruism. Yeah, of course. Where have you been? Because <laughs> <laughs> effective altruism has taken over a yeah. lot of movements. And I'd say it's had a pretty big impact on, especially the financing of the animal rights. hundred percent. Yeah. But Brian Tomasic was, was an early, yeah, he's got this group called the Foundation for, it's, it's a weird name, but it's like research into animal advocacy and very theoretical. And um, I think, okay, Brian, I'm going to apologize if this is not your view, but I'm pretty sure his view of even just sentient life is on a net. It causes more suffering yeah. than joy and therefore, and joy, he has kind of like a, a Buddhist mentality where suffering matters more than joy. Um, so like one unit of suffering equals like hundred or a thousand or maybe even a million units of joy because suffering is so bad and joy is so inconsequential. Yeah. It's actually kind of a Buddhist mentality. A lot of Buddhists yeah. have this mentality. Like joy is not something we should seek, but suffering is something we should avoid. And so his conclusion is it's kind of better if there's no life, which is a little scary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah this, like, is <laughs> this is life out all sentient life because life is suffering. So I'll give you one concrete manifestation of this. I've had discussions with him, and again, I could be butchering his views, so I'm so sorry if I'm misstating your views, Brian, and I'm making you out to be, because I don't think he's a bad person. He's like a really good person. He's really generous, and has like mm -hmm. donated a huge amount of money, I think, to animal causes. But one immediate conclusion that I've argued with him about is like just environmental devastation and development. Yeah. Like if we just wipe out a natural space and turn it all mm -hmm. to concrete, like what was happening yeah. in Palm Beach, yeah. he would say, oh, thank God, no animals will be right. born. It's all concrete now. Yeah. There's no life. <laughs> it, and it's like, to me, that sounds utterly absurd. But that is where you can start. That, that is the path you can start going down if you're too utilitarian, if you're just about suffering and this weird kind of like how much suffering and joy is in the world. Let's like figure it out. And you want to reduce the create, world to a laboratory where you can, yeah. we can 
measure things. Yeah. And that is, I mean, this is why I think context is important. Mm -hmm. We have, I mean, the history of the world is really bent in the middle of the 20th century around World War II. Mm -hmm. And the human rights regime and the emergence of human rights was the recognition that self-determination or relative self-determination should be the anchor point for everything. It's not uh, eliminating suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, Effective altruism, it's fascinating. They assume their property rights. They Mm -hmm. just assume that the system that created massive suffering in inequity and degraded democracy, but gave them their wealth, that they can use that wealth to choose whatever they want to do to make the world in their vision. Not all effective altruists are like that. Some are. Uh, But it's, it's... it's a, a notion that's completely disrespectful of the history of rights and the emergence of the human rights regime and the need for self-determination. Yeah. Um, you can't simply go out around the world trying to minimize uh, suffering if you're doing it in ignorance of the need for people to self-determine because life's more complex yeah. than not suffering. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. I'm going to stop one more time and see if he needs more food. All right, we're back again. Let's get a fist Sorry. Fight. Joan is learning from his father too well and is disrupting this talk because he has a moral objection to what's happening. The moral objection is he wants more food. So he has raised his moral objection very effectively. He has been given more food, so hopefully he stops disrupting us. But, you know, it is kind of his right as the real owner of this household. Um, I'm just like a servant, sadly. Uh, But it's a good life. He's a good master to me. But we've been talking a lot about population, diving in the weeds. It's been fascinating. But I haven't asked you the question, how did you even get interested in this stuff? And um, let me just ask you that first. Sure. I want to ask you how that intersects with the animal stuff. Cause, uh, I knew you through animal stuff and like, I think I didn't even realize you cared a lot about population until fairly not, I mean, not that recent. It was probably been at least a 10 years, but I've known Carter certainly since 2009, 2010. I knew yep. your work before then. Um, and I want to talk about some of that early work for animals cause people have forgotten this history and it's really important. And I don't even know it. I mean, I know some of the skeletal outlines of it, like COK. I've talked to Paul and Josh a lot about their early days as open rescue activists. And most people don't know, Paul still has like a photo of Harriet, you know, the chicken. Yeah. That I've, and I don't even know exactly what your involvement you, were, you had in all that, but I know you were part of yeah. that team. So I wanted to ask you about that. But before I ask you about all that, how did you get interested in this population stuff in the first place? Yeah. And I think, what, well, and just to, to roadmap it, I think you're interested in how got interested in population, its relationship to animal rights. Mm-hmm. And then we could talk a little bit about the COK days. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I was working for the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, hey, buddy. Doing some garden variety deportation cases. Why? Why did you decide to work for DHS? Because you had already, by that point, worked for COK. Right? No, this is before. Oh, really? Yeah. So this when is I like first got late, out of law school. This is like the late 90s, early... This is like, uh, this 2000 is and 2000, 2001. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Damn, uh, what a career transition. Uh, well, <laughs> From working for DHS to working for COK? I had... Well, I was working for the Bush administration, eventually doing national security cases. So the Damn. only way... To get into heaven was to offset it with something uber altruistic. Wow. Okay, animal so, but, rights. But why did you decide to do that? Because I mean, it sounds like you're prestige pretty progressive. I was a, just... I was an honors appointee to the DOJ, and wow. I wanted okay. I wanted that title. Oh, and those are good jobs. It was a good job. Yeah, I mean, people try to get those jobs, yeah. and yeah. So was this before or after nine eleven that you joined? Before nine eleven, and then and I transitioned to DC and national security after nine eleven. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you, you go to this job. Um, it's not for an administration. Did you like the administration at the time? I didn't think much about it. I was just, you were just trying to get the job that trying would get to get you the, the job. most status. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. 
Okay, so you get there. Tell the story. So you're at DA, you're Department yeah, I mean, of Homeland so Security. One of the cases I had involved a family that had had three or four children mm-hmm. um, fled to the United States, claiming that they would be persecuted under the one-child policy. Which they would have been. Yeah, so, this is a Chinese family. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. And um, so they were resisting deportation, deportation based sure. on asylum on that grounds. And at the time, the law said that what they had done uh, would have subject them to prosecution, not wow. persecution, because China's one-child policy, while its enforcement mechanisms violated human rights standards, mm-hmm. the actual policy had, did not violate that standard. Interesting. But the Republicans had taken, in 94, had made this issue about one-child policy a political football. Hmm. And so the administration at the time changed the policy to say that any resistance to the one-child policy, changed the domestic policy in the United States to say that any resistance to the one-child policy constituted grounds to resist asylum as as persecution. Interesting. So, um, so it was the Republicans who did this. Yeah. So the That's the, fascinating. the family got asylum. Yeah. But but there was the schism where there was no human right to have an unlimited number of children, mm-hmm. but Congress just came up with a policy that said, well, pretend there is. It's a legal okay. fiction. So I wrote an article for the Yale Human Rights Journal saying, for the record, there's no such right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I didn't mind, I mean, I, I liked the family. They were great in the courtroom. Uh, but I thought the case raised like an, an untenable, I mean, it, it raised a, a problematic claim which is there is a right, an unlimited right to have children. children sure. That means the death of the planet. That means nothing for future children. That means mm-hmm. nothing for equity. And so it was the idea was, I just got in, I sort of got incensed. Were you already an environmentalist and an animal rights person? Like, were you vegan already? In I was. You were. Yeah. Because of the influence of your sister? Uh, I'd say more vegetarian. Vegetarian. More, okay. <coughs> I know that because when I went to COK, I became fully vegan. Okay. Yeah. And this, well, this was the influence of your sister or because she was sending you stuff from Ingrid? The mom By the way, I just had Ingrid on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, the mom originally and then, yeah, she's great. And then Courtney through, and yeah, I was okay. more of like a PETA vegetarian okay. at the time. So uh, your mom was the first influence. Yeah. She loves animals, yeah. but is not even vegetarian? No. Okay. Yeah. And then your sister, probably partly influenced by your mom too, gets involved in PETA. Yeah. And then this extends to you. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're already thinking about the ecology and natural spaces. Yeah. And, and then you said you had this personal experience, too, of just watching Palm Beach turn into concrete. Right. Okay. So and all this is feeding into your mind yeah. about, okay, how do we think about population human beings in a way that's reasonable for sustaining life on this earth? And you see this family that's saying, we have a right to have as many children as we want. Yeah. And you think that can't be right. Is that, right. Is and that I, a good summary? That's, a, that's perfect. And also because I had... I mean, I had enough background in rights theory okay. to know that something was wrong here because rights are supposed to be internally consistent. They're supposed to be sure. gelling with other rights. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And this right didn't make any sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, how do you go from there? So you, you see this case. What happens with this case? Yeah. So they, they were granted asylum. Okay. And then I went on to write that article saying that for the record, that the right to have children is much more limited mm-hmm. than people think. Uh, and then I published that article uh, and began to sort of pivot my focus towards animal rights. And at that point, met um, Paul Shapiro, Josh Balk, mm-hmm. Peter Peterson, some of the other folks, me and Park, mm-hmm. uh, who were doing Compassion Over Killing, what eventually sure. became Animal Outlook. And I left uh, the DOJ 
and at the time I had transitioned to Homeland Security because 9-11, we all got pulled into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left that to work as That's their right. general okay, counsel. So you started at DOJ in yep. the honors program, which is a very prestigious yep. program. And then you moved to Homeland Security because Homeland Security actually didn't even didn't exist, exist. Yeah. until so, 9-11. So after yeah. 9-11, after it was created, people that had security clearances were moved up to, to DHS to do okay. 9-11 cases. What happened to that family that had asylum? They, they, I didn't follow them after that. Okay. Interesting. Um, okay. So, what, but you're, you're at Homeland Security. What are you doing at Homeland Security? Just so I was security research or yeah. memos about how we can, I don't, I don't even know. Yeah. We, a lot of the concern after nine 11 was that people that were in the country on immigration status were threats. Mm. And so D- DHS had a unit that was designed to assess those threats Hmm. based on, um, and their immigration status as a basis to detain them Hmm. and in some cases remove them Wow! in conjunction with joint task force agencies Mm -hmm. um, that were tasked with that work. And I will add, I mean, this sounds post-hoc, but I will add, I was watching the security situation deteriorate because of bad family planning Mm -hmm. uh, around the world um, and noticing it was sort of buttressing my opinion that the China sure. case, there's something amiss here when, uh, Afghani women are being forced to have five or six children, many of which are getting pulled into the Taliban. Sure. Uh, many women in Iraq were having children that were going to get pulled into, um, Al Haida and then eventually ISIS. Sure. Uh, and it was like, this is all totally inconsistent with the human rights regime. These children mm-hmm. are being created for a system contrary to human rights. Yeah. So it just buttressed the opinion, and then I you know, got into my work with Compassion Over Killing. Interesting. So the, the population growth, and I should say the human rights stuff that focused yeah. on population kind of predates your animal rights activism. It does, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So then why did you shift to animal rights activism and not get involved in some ecological group yeah, More focused on on population and human rights and the right of a child to live a dignified life. Like, what was it that drew you to see? Okay, I mean, so this now you this podcast has taught me something very dark about myself. Really? Uh, yeah, I think I did it because human rights was completely institutionalized, huh. and my chance of making a difference yes. or making a name for myself yeah. was probably limited. Whereas animal rights was in its infancy, or at least its practice. Sure. I mean, obviously, it had been around since Berg and before Berg, and. Certainly Singer added something, but the, the practice of animal law yeah. was still in its infancy. And so I thought, well, I was doing some, I, done, I started, I met some people at Compassion Over Killing and I started yeah. doing free work for them. Um, and I, we got recognition from that work. Yep. We had some success. And so this is when you were at Homeland Security. Yeah, doing free work I was doing pro bono for them. Were you allowed to do that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. They actually well, approved it. <laughs> I had a guy who was... especially given the stuff that they were doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they did, Paul they... Shapiro and Josh Bulk nowadays are very mainstream and like yeah. institutionalized activists. They were doing lawbreaking activity well, back then, and Paul Shapiro was like a hardcore. Dude, yeah. Understand. This is like a great a punk. This is a great lesson for people in reality. Uh-huh. Um, the well, by the way, I, yes, I was doing the cases pro bono, and one of my colleagues who was like seasoned DOD, and I'm pretty sure he worked for the agency. I came in one day, and I was doing a case involving false advertising of eggs. Mm -hmm. So I came into work one day, and there was a stuffed chicken, uh, stuffed animal chicken sitting on my desk to make fun of the work that I was doing. So the... So when I went from Homeland Security into animal rights, people, you know, like, oh, uh, is this person a plant? Are they worried about us as animal activists? Uh, Are they worried about domestic terrorism? Are they worried about 
Um, oh, especially in the punk community. I mean, there was like yeah. so much paranoia. Everybody thought I was infiltrated for like years in the yeah. punk community in Chicago. Right. It was Would, terrible. <laughs> like they didn't accept me at all, you know? Yeah. Would, and so, I, my, I was not at Homeland Security. I was just a lawyer and a law professor. Yeah, you know? I mean, we had the Domestic Terrorism Act. Sure. Uh, that... It was just firing up then. The first version of yeah. it kicked Animal in. Animal Enterprise Protection Act yeah. and the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act after that. Yeah. That's right. So the Protection Act was in existence. And yeah. actually, I in worked the on stages. the amendments that led wow. to the Terrorism Act. But the... Um, you, wait, you worked on the amendments? HSUS was... Led, at, HSUS okay, you worked lobbied. against it. Yeah. Not, okay, so yeah. Well, we influenced its eventual result sure. yeah. through Feinstein's okay. office. But the... Um, the real, point about reality was that people thought, oh, you know, you're going to, would DOJ, would Homeland Security be okay with you working with these animal activists yeah. because of possibility of domestic terrorism? And be like, you don't understand the kind of people we were looking at sure. with Homeland Security. <laughs> if you think that Paul Shapiro <laughs> and Josh Balk, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like, I don't think you know what national security does. Yeah. So um, it's a joke. Domestic like animal rights activists are kids, and they are well-meaning, and the the threat they pose relative to yeah. what the entities that are tearing our country apart, yeah. mostly corporate. I want to ask you more about that because, yeah. you, I mean, I think a lot of people have that common sense reaction. I'd say most lawyers, and <laughs> yeah. maybe even most prosecutors and law enforcement officers have that reaction, and yet the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act still does pass. Yeah. And yet you have cases like the one I'm going to trial on in September. Yeah, and Shaq where you have. You. Yeah, I, you know, probably at least a dozen yeah. FBI agents yeah. involved in investigating a case across yeah. state lines that involves two baby pigs. Sure. Both of whom were sick and dying. Yeah. You have the attorney general of the state of Utah heavily involved in this case. And so, you know, that common sense intuitive reaction you had, and I think yeah. probably your colleagues had at Homeland Security, like animal rights activists are terrorists. That's yeah. ridiculous. They're trying to take animals to the vet has not lived in the institutions of our government over the next 15 years. So I want to ask you about that. But before that, I want to ask you just, how did you get to know like Josh and yeah. and, and Paul? Uh, well, and I'll answer that. Like in, you a punk kid or something or I'll, I'll, I'll answer those in reverse. I, okay. One is it's, a, it's an easy answer. Okay. Institutions become self-serving hmm. and you create an infrastructure for an infrastructure for domestic terrorism and then and you give it yeah. control. You give control yep. to backwater politicians. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then they look for targets. Who just want to shut down their critics and hurt people who are look, on the other side. And they want to support their yep. political okay. cronies. The institutions designed to protect oh, so us from domestic terrorism yeah. were put in service mm -hmm. of targeting people who are not domestic threats because those agencies need to continue to yeah. exist, and, and because the, the politicians and, driving them yep. are corrupt. Yeah. That's yeah. the simple answer. To me, so uh, I was riding my bike on the mall, and I saw... This is the, the Washington Mall. Yeah, the Washington okay. Mall. And uh, I saw some animal activists. I didn't know they were animal activists at the time. I saw some people that looked like they were tabling, and uh, there was a fellow twice their size wearing a big 10-gallon uh, cowboy hat. It looked like he was sort of menacing them. Uh -huh. And so I rode my bike over and, um, it was Paul and Peter Peterson. I don't think Mian was there. Huh. And Josh wasn't there yet. There was another guy, Steve. Oh, Josh wasn't there at the founding. No. Well, he wasn't there at the table. Oh, he wasn't I, at the table. Yeah. I think I he was definitely Josh there. And and Paul I think they together. were. Yeah. Okay. So I, um, you know, I 
was a PETA supporter at the time. And I said, oh, mm -hmm. what's going on here? And uh, I pretended I was sort of trying to intervene or something. And I, mm -hmm. you know, uphold my PETA literature. Mm -hmm. But they didn't need me because these these kids were seasoned advocates. And they knew sure. how to they knew how to sway people. Uh, Homeland Security sways people in different directions, than, different means than these kids were using. <laughs> Much more effective. They, were, they weren't cajoling. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... That ended by me saying, "Look, are I'm a lawyer." Are you saying invading and bombing people is the best way to persuade? <laughs> what are you saying? Carter? Well, it's you know, it's it are not, you even an American? I feel like you should leave this house. It's no, hard. Okay. It's hard for people to oppose you when they yeah. don't exist. Yeah, that, uh, that's true, and that's a sad truth. Of kind of our approach to persuasion when it comes to homeland security in the yeah. last 15 years, or t actually, this is longer than 15 years. But no, I mean, okay, I think so it's uh, that's a digression. But you go to Paul, yeah. and you've literally never met him before. Oh, yeah. you know, he's that's so interesting. Yeah, we, so we we hit it off, and I. I said, look, I'm a lawyer. I'm happy to do pro bono work. I love the okay. work you guys are doing. And they said... What were know, they doing? Just handing out like vegan leaflets? Yeah. Okay. Had that, they done open rescues at that at, point? They had done their first or second wow. egg farm investigation. Okay. And they Which gotten, was an open rescue. Just yeah. No, not an employment-based investigation. Just walking right in. I think so. Okay, cool. I'm not sure. I have to be honest. I don't remember yeah. exactly. But they did get a Washington Post yeah, they piece did. out of it. It was a huge... Oh, it was a huge deal. Yeah, I think uh, I heard about this. And I was someone who was terrified of the idea of open rescue or civil disobedience. I mean, I was against protests back yeah. in those days. In like 2001 to 2004, I was like a young vegan who said like... Well, you were behind the foie gras stuff in Chicago. Well, I no. I mean, I was... I mean, I kind of. Like, Joe Moore was behind it. He was yeah. the one who did it. I did a lot of the organizing behind it, um, but it would have happened regardless. It was Jana Cole, you know? Yeah, the, I know Jana Cole. Yeah, Jana Cole is amazing. I think yeah. she's in LA now. I haven't talked to her in, in a while, yeah. but it was Jana... Joe. And it really, it was just an act of conscience by Joe. It was kind of surprised to everyone in Chicago. And that was later on. But in the early 2000s, around, this is what year is this when you meet Paul? 2004. 2004. Okay. Three, so, yeah, I think, actually. The, the foie gras ban happens in, I think, 2006. So yeah. this is a couple years later. And even by the time the foie gras ban happened, I was still pretty like anti-protest for the most part and anti-anything that was aggressive. Mm. So when I heard about the COK investigations, like I, it was weird because... On the one hand, I was such a rule-bound, this is kind of funny because I've got so many felonies and prosecutions mm -hmm. right now, but growing up, I was such like a rule-following person because I'm Chinese. You know, I have very strict mm -hmm. parents. I got good grades and did what my parents told me for the most part. And the only times I broke the rules were like I literally had to to survive. So like mm -hmm. I fought back when someone assaulted me with a knife and I gave him a black eye and I got in trouble for it, which is totally fucked up in a different story. <laughs> but I really just did believe in authority structures and, and so at that point in my life, I'm thinking, you know, all these protests, all this radical actors in the ALF, it's all bad. But open rescue was one of the few points of tension for me. Because on the yeah. one hand, I thought, no, you don't break the rules. That's not the way you make change. And it's funny because now I think the opposite. It's like, and it's not just me. Most people who study social change, like literally the model of the MIT Media Lab, which is thinking about how does communications and narrative change the world? They're, they're, I think it's an informal model is no one ever changes the world by following the rules. Yeah. That's the motto of the MIT Media Lab. The stories we tell have to be disruptive stories. And this is also the motto of tech. Yeah. Like we're sitting here in the middle of San Francisco, every VC venture capitalist, every entrepreneur, every tech visionary is saying, you got to disrupt. There's literally a conference. In fact, the biggest conference in tech is called Disrupt. But back in the early 2000s, I had the opposite mentality. I thought, no, you don't disrupt. You do the opposite of disrupt. You stabilize. You calm everyone down. You have a rational conversation. Give them relevant information, and then everything changes because they just realize the rational conclusion is animal rights, and things have changed a lot for me. But for you, you, know, you see Paul sitting there. Did you know? How, how quickly did you know that they had engaged in this law-breaking activity? Um, 
I learned that about a month later. Okay. But I don't, I want to say one thing about what you just said. I don't want to let please, that go. Because um, if you are doing open rescue and mm-hmm. what I see DXE doing, I see that as complying with the correct moral rule with regard, with regard to the, the determination of property. Yeah. Uh, if we and legal should, rule too, for the record. Correct. Cause that's right. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it's, 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 one of the things yeah. that, that I learned about Open Rescue is there are actually are very compelling legal theories for this. Like, That's right. I, I actually now conclude and believe, in my heart of hearts, I don't believe I've broken the law. People say I've broken the law. I don't think but you to have. to me, yeah, I don't think I have. I don't either. think you have. And yeah. I think the more important, that's, you haven't broken the positive law, the law that's production of social sure. processes, but I don't think you've broken the moral law. This is where I'd sort of divert from Bentham, is that if you appropriate the non-human world, mm-hmm. animals and their ecologies as a resource, you might get to a situation where humans have degraded the situation so bad that it's a threat to themselves and people are dying in droves and heat waves in Europe today. So your compliance with the moral rule in a microcosm, but extended to the fact that we deappropriate the non-human world. Mm -hmm. And Fair Start does it through existential means, Mm -hmm. which is the very creation of people occurs in the rule system where the non-human world is presumed not to be appropriated, but it exists wild and free and we exist in numbers and in qualities consistent with that wildness that's why we don't appropriate it existentially you did it at a microcosm level with open rescues cok did it mm-hmm. at, a, at a microcosm level so i don't see you as a rule breaker i yeah. see you as complying with functional moral rules that would have prevented mass deaths from the climate crisis and that mm-hmm. the legal system is in contravention of those rules. Yeah. Uh, not always, as I say, I think you're also complying with the legal system in your cases. But I saw, to, to bring it back, I saw Paul and Josh on the mall and I knew them going to take animals who were suffering out and documenting it in cases where it wasn't open rescue. And I can't remember which one they had just done, whether it was mm-hmm. open rescue or investigation, that they were just complying with the rules that ought to be. Uh, and so I wasn't afraid to work with them. And so eventually took so that, on their cases. That's full-time. so inconsistent with your motivation for being at the department of justice and DHS yeah. in the first place. Yeah, cause well, like humans are pluralistic, I guess. So. Yeah. I mean, cause you went there because it was like the thing that everyone yeah. wanted you to do. And that was giving you status and then going in. I, I agree with your moral argument, but it's a terrible argument for social status Yeah, for you. And I think, I mean, I, when I talked to Justin about this, he relayed some terrible experiences I and mean, yeah. even being, very distinguished law professor in a lot of ways of how hard it is to advocate for animals in the context of a society and a legal academy that really just doesn't respect the work. So, I mean, just, it seems like such a monumental jump for you to go from DHS being an honors attorney, litigator at a law school at the Department of Justice to working with this vagabond. This, this one's easy. Because <laughs> Paul and Josh, yeah. <laughs> it's not like they're influential animal rights organization. It's yeah. not HSUS. It's not even PETA. Yeah. COK back in those days was just like three punk kids yeah. breaking into farms, rightly or wrongly, legally or illegally, yeah. breaking into farms to rescue animals. So what convinces you to make that jump? Yeah, and I want to make one thing clear. I know Paul and Josh and everyone, I mean, they, they were great. Me and Park, in my mind, She's is amazing. a driver behind yeah. so many things, but is so quiet. Yeah, she is. But to me, in many ways... And an Asian sister. Yeah, Mian was, is a leader to me, and I think was a quiet force behind a lot of that, yeah, if not the force. what happened to her? Why isn't she involved in the animal I think she still anymore? is. Is um, she? Okay. She's still doing vegan advocacy last time I checked, That's and good. I saw her in D.C. Uh, not good. long ago. But I... Um, you got to connect me with her. I want to sit down and have a conversation with her at some point. Please. I will. Um, this one's easy. 
Homeland Security at the time was already being accused of misusing its authority to detain people under immigration. Because they were. Yeah. I didn't want to <laughs> because be Because they were. Yeah. yeah. And I was, we were in the center of those accusations. So, okay, so I you're mean, just like, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this is easy. But still, right? why don't you go work for a law firm or try yeah. to become a professor or something instead of... We had success because when I was doing a pro bono case, we'd started to win it. I see. And so okay. I knew what it was like. You knew this was, could, could be groundbreaking. You'd be cogging a wheel or you'd just be off on your own yeah. doing stuff that's cool. And, and that, this was an easy one. Yeah. The United Egg producers had put a false advertising system together sure. uh and eventually you know we got it pulled off of so 80 percent of the eggs sold in the united states were carrying this false advertising and eventually it was removed and and the uep settled with okay. the attorney generals for a hundred thousand so dollars interesting so this is was the work that josh and Mune and paul were doing is this the foundation for the false advertising piece exactly. you wrote because that was. was like from 2004 it was yeah that the, that well, you hadn't even started a job that's okay then, probably. Or had you just started there? I mean, it must have been very recent. It was the, I think it was that. the first year, but that okay. that article was simply the case file turned yeah. into a law review. Wow. It's a good article. I oh, think I, I really do think it's foundational. I think Thank that you. was the first time, as far as I'm aware, that animal rights activists really started thinking about the humane myth and false advertising. And if Gary Francione were a more charitable person, he would give you some credit. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> I'm sure I, he doesn't like you. He certainly doesn't like Josh and yeah. Mune and Paul. But given how much he's been concerned about the humane myth over the years and like, you know, why yeah. veganism is the moral baseline because all this other shit is just nonsense. Yeah. I mean, he should give you some credit for it. He won't, but he should. Well, well I'll, I'll, when we end the podcast, I'll, I'll end with why I'll plan, I plan on turning false advertising against the movement itself, including people like Gary, based on population concerns. <laughs> all right. Interesting. Good, good. I mean, I'm down. Like, okay. I think good movements are accountable. And yeah. we have these internal discussions and critiques in a way that's helpful and yeah. that allows us to grow. Okay, so... What was it about, I mean, was it just the fact they were successful? I mean, was there something else about the relationship with this crew? Was it just those three people primarily involved no, in the were No, there were other people. Patrick. Okay. Um, How did they get funding? What happened to Patrick? I've never even heard that name. He's still, he's an investigator with HSUS. I believe he's really? still there. Yeah. Huh. There were probably um, a dozen people total, I guess, if you, if you okay. count it all. Employees or just people involved? No, no, no. People that were volunteers or okay. <clears throat> loosely involved. Gavrick Matheny. Okay, Jason I know that Matheny. name too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So very like DXE style, just a bunch of young people who <sighs> work in other jobs, living on couches, trying to make a living. I mean, it, it was it, it was pretty ragtag. Pretty yeah, ragtag. Okay. yeah. No, I think we there were there were times that people were dumpster diving. It was sure. it was really. I mean, it was great because they uh, were doing real justice. Sure. With no money. Whereas yeah. the Department of Justice is like doing things that weren't so just with yeah. a lot of money. So it was just the contrast, seeing that. You know, you're seeking status and going to this job in this institution that's not, you know, maybe giving you status, but certainly not serving justice. Correct. And and you do a flip. And yeah, so but it's like, also self-serving if you think eventually this agency is going to get in trouble do. for some of the stuff that yeah. they're being accused and, of. And if you think that the animal rights movement, which I think is true, is transcending, is, is transcending and yep. going to achieve a lot of things. And I think what what all of you did in those those early years in the early 2000s was transcendent for not just the animal rights movement, but beyond. Because I think that, I mean, my first real understanding of powerful undercover investigations, and, and even just factory farm work in general, came from COK hmm. and um, Compassionate Action for Animals and Mercy for Animals. I think Compassionate Action for Animals and, uh, what's the guy's name in Minnesota? The, do you know oh, this? The yeah, guy who, Freeman Wicklund. Yeah. Yeah. So his work in Minnesota, which didn't blow up as big as COK's work. Yeah. COK's work really blew up. It's in the Washington Post, which is huge. Like animal rights stuff being in the Washington Post, unheard of back then. Just didn't happen. 
I think the, the, the concern over farm animals um, really starts with that because mm-hmm. the movement was not that concerned about farm animals. And there was some shifts. Like I think um, there's a psychologist who writes about this, Hal Herzog. Do you know this guy? I don't. And it's funny, Hal Herzog, I don't even I know if he's vegan himself, but he's done a lot of research on animal advocacy mm-hmm. and the sociology and demographics of animal advocates. His daughter, Katie Herzog, is very famous for getting canceled. Mm. Oh, really? Because <laughs> she mm. has like a podcast. I think I could be getting Katie's wrong, but I think she's the one who wrote in The Stranger some stuff about like trans people, about how like lesbians are becoming trans now and the lesbians are disappearing. And then she got accused. It's, it's, very, it's just weird parallels and interesting stuff. But Hal Herzog wrote in the 90s about how like in the 1994 Animal Rights Conference, I don't even know if it was called the Animal Rights Conference, most people weren't even vegetarian. Mm. You know, the real focus was just vivisection. And to a certain extent, first stuff, but really experimentation. But late 90s, that was shifting a little bit. And then by the early 2000s, partly because of COK and Compassion Action for Animals, but really, I think, primarily COK. Mercy for Animals did amazing stuff. Nathan Runkle, now Milo, um, did a really important open rescue in Ohio around that same time period that was really powerful. Did you all, did you talk to Nathan at all back then? Yeah, oh, not then, rescue? not then, no. Okay, not until all the time at LDF. Yeah, but yeah. everyone was like following the footsteps. But for sure, COK was was the group that really put open rescue on the agenda of the American animal rights movement. And by doing that also put farm animals on the agenda. And, um, yeah, but let, let me, why don't you tell the story? So you go to work, are you employed initially? Do they offer you a job? Yeah, I was their work? general counsel. Okay. Uh, and did they pay you anything? Yeah. <laughs> really? They had money. What did, did you get funding? If you could say $16,000 a year. Really? It That's was, it? Yeah. It was not much. Damn. And I think, um, I don't, 16,000. I didn't know a lot about their funders. I mean, they okay. had uh, a handful so of individuals. It wasn't foundation stuff. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Why'd you take a job with so low pay? I mean, did, did that feel like a sacrifice? I mean, I mean, yes, actually it was. Because I, sure, I could yeah. introduce you to the roommates I had to take on at the time. It was definitely a sacrifice. <laughs> uh, but I, um, I mean, honestly, yeah, it was probably this grand hope that what we were doing Dream would was eventually. And, it was, yeah. and also it was like, to be honest, I mean, there was some empathy involved because the conditions sure. that they were exposing. Yeah, were just so awful. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, again, it's like feeling superior to people because... I happen to understand and empathize with what I'm seeing here as being a quantity of suffering that should um, compel someone to action. And if someone doesn't see that, there's something wrong with them. They're yeah, like lacking yeah. compassion. They're lacking empathy. They're like a dullard. Yeah. And so it's a, there's a bit of a supremacy feel sure. to it. Again, and we've all to be been self-serving. through that. We've, every, every vegan on this planet has gone through that stage. And yeah. For those of you who are in that stage now, grow out of it. Yes, you're not all that. I mean, yeah. not to say that you're on awesome. Like I said, it's a miracle yeah. that everyone's a vegan, but there's a lot of really good people who are not vegan, and yeah. they just haven't had the same privileges and opportunities we've had in yeah. education. You know, and and it's important for us to be humble. Privilege, and privilege for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, both of us have That's had right. privilege. I mean, different types of privilege. There's but no, I have had immense. I've had yeah. opportunities to work with scholars. I've had yeah. years of my life where I could yeah. just think about things. There's so many people who yeah. struggling just to find a place to live. I mean, literally, I'm living in San Francisco. We had that music playing outside. It's because people don't have a home. Yeah. They're living on the street because the place they play music is on the street because they don't have an apartment in San Francisco because the average apartment is $3,500 fucking dollars in San Francisco yeah. now. Yeah. Who can afford that? You know, yeah. Unless you're making six figures, it's ridiculous. I, I think he changed the title self-made person from self-made man. Hmm. But if you, if there's a, a reduction of his theory, his work in the Tennessean hmm. from about two months ago, and his name is Hugh LaFollette. Hmm. Hugh LaFollette is one of the leading ethicists in the world. He's 
He's the editor of the International Encyclopedia of Ethics. But if you think that whatever you're doing is you, yeah. rethink it because you're a product yeah. of your environment. So and and in, in, yeah. in our cases, we are a product of privilege. It was a total privilege move to be able to make that little, oh my God, I couldn't have made it yeah. if I wasn't getting support from my parents. And so, yeah. So your parents privilege. helped you out when you did. took that job? That's yeah. awesome. Good for so them. So it was privilege. And yeah, we, you know, we had high hopes. And eventually we got basically hoovered up by HSUS, mm -hmm. Wayne Pacelli, Nancy Perry. Hoovered in terms of vacuum, yeah. not in terms of the president. Right. Okay, yeah. John Lovern and others that were leadership there mm -hmm. and brought into that structure. And COK continued under Erica Meyer, okay. eventually Cheryl Leahy, and they renamed themselves to Animal Outlook. But we were all at HSUS for a tenure. Yeah, what was it like? So I want to ask you about that integration HSUS, but mm -hmm. what was it like? Shifting to this ragtag group, did you? I mean, did you have an office? Did you come to work every day? Yeah, we day? had an office. Did you have good relations with the people? Was it fun? We, we had fun. Was it depressing? It was fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you you were. I mean, it's like the. So you liked your coworkers back then. It was the antithesis of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, hmm. where you're in a shark pit against sure. each other. We were there for a common cause, knowing we were and making sacrifices. That's great. Yeah, and also get you know we had high hopes. It's um, but also recognition of the already yeah the fact that what black activists have known forever, which animal rights people are learning too late, which is the legal system is largely designed to preserve the power, power structure. Yeah. It is not designed to do what it says it's supposed to do, yeah, you're right. uh, which is dole out justice. And so you learn that the hard way. Yeah. Uh, biased judges, yep. uh, corrupt prosecutors. Yep. I'm learning uh, to write that right now. I know you are. And yeah. I mean, I've learned it over the last 10 years. My first arrest was outside of a Burberry, um, and I was just leafleting. It was yeah. completely unconstitutional. I got charged with a felony. Yeah, That was my first experience with law enforcement, realizing, oh, maybe authority isn't so great. And but, I don't want to yeah. equate animal activists with, with uh, the experiences yeah. of persons of color. Oh, I don't, yeah. I, I mean, think... like Fred Hanton got murdered by the Chicago police. Yeah. It's like the Martin Luther King Jr., had, the, the FBI tried to convince him to commit suicide. That was a campaign by the government to convince a nonviolent activist to commit suicide by spreading rumors about him. So you what nasty stuff? Anything you do that regards the legal system, groups that support it mm -hmm. or use it, you want to go to law school, anything that involves the legal system, you have to come at it from a critical perspective. I yeah, think because I if you get and I at the time we went in, I brought them in in some ways with a without that sufficiently critical perspective hmm. of just how backwards it was. Something that eventually ended up in Prop Two and Prop Twelve. What do you mean by I brought them in? I didn't, well, I mean as their lawyer. Okay. I wish I had come in at the time and said, mm, and said to there are Josh severe and limits and, yeah, to the to legal system. Yeah. I think you know, Prop 2 and Prop 12 were direct democracy because mm -hmm. 597, because California's intensive confinement law was yeah. never going to be enforced. Yep. So they had to come with a workaround where direct democracy overrode mm -hmm. the political processes. But that, that story alone should have told you just how corrupt yeah. the system, system was. Is, yeah. So what, people say, oh, you're just going to, bash the system but what are you doing about yeah. it if you come with a critical perspective yeah you realize that you're going to also be operating outside of it so i'm not going to recognize property rights yeah. that are not assigned Time by a group of people who were justly created mm -hmm. and dxc is not going to recognize property rights to appropriate non-humans who are suffering and dying because there are legal and moral reasons to disregard those property rights. yeah and that's that's an elegant way of describing the theory behind direct action yeah. you know direct action is just Visualizing a better world and acting in accordance with that vision. That's it. And I, I don't even think it doesn't have to be particularly radical. It doesn't have to be confrontational, disruptive. It certainly doesn't have to be illegal. It could be a conversation to me. You know, I think 
redefining direct action is part of the reason I founded Direct Action Everywhere because I wanted to be a more participatory direct action movement where people could see it's just about that. Just yeah. realizing the fictions, the lies, the indoctrination we've right. been told about what is right and what is wrong, what is property, what is not property. Right. We don't have to believe that bullshit. Right. When someone tells us a dog is just a thing and so who cares if I force feed a puppy laundry detergent until she vomit bloods yeah. and dies. My eyes and my ears and my heart tell me that's not true. Yeah. That dog's not just a thing and she's feeling something and it's wrong. It's just listening to your heart instead of the bullshit some authority figure is telling you. And right. unfortunately, human beings are very susceptible to authority. I mean, Stanley Milgram did the experiments. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's a shocking percentage. I think it was 70% of people in this experiment and it was an experiment so it didn't really happen but they would basically torture someone to the point they were dead. Like shock them over and over again to the point the person's screaming in agony and saying, I can't breathe. You're going to cause a heart attack. And then they go silent. Yeah. Right. And it was 70% of very well adjusted, you know, high pedigree Yale undergraduates would do this all the way to the point where people, I could get the, I could be getting the exact percentage wrong. Very unethical experiment, by the way, a little fucked up. And apparently a lot of people had trauma after this, like because they were sitting yeah. there watching someone die and like, you can't do that anymore because you have to pass in institutional review boards. But there's something unfortunate about human psychology. The good thing is, if we develop the right sort of norms, including norms of disagreement, norms of care, right? That ultimately our value system as a community, as a group, even at this table, we can develop a norm and say like, hey, you know, if Joan's suffering, instead right. of just thinking about this podcast, we can like give him some food or yeah. something. Or like, you know, if Andre needs to go to the bathroom, instead of just forcing him to sit here and like waiting <laughs> until he has to pee, like let's let him use the bathroom. Let's care about each other. But I do think that tendency to comply with authority can be used for good as long as the authority structures are democratic right right are based on care are based on yeah. rights are based on things that actually matter instead of just power for its own sake and i think the cold harsh reality of the system in which we live which people on the right and the left are all recognizing is that's not the authority structure we live in right now our authority structure right now is about principally power for its own correct sake. it really yeah. is and you just don't see that until you're in the weeds there's so much mythology about the system in which we live you know it's, it's, we've talked a lot about the animal rights movement in the, in the past, not on this podcast, is too compliant with this idea that, oh, we have to like support the government and support prosecutors and be involved in prosecutors because they're the ones who are going to enforce animal cruelty laws. This is the same institution that tried to get Martin Luther King Jr. to commit suicide. Mm -hmm. This is the same institution that has killed so many black people without an accountability at all until the last 10 years. And white people too. It's not just black people. There are lots of instances of police brutality against white people that go completely unaddressed. This is the same institution, I was just reading this morning, and I, I'd heard about this before, that the FBI hired prostitutes with STDs to go into activist communities and spread venereal disease, venereal disease throughout activist communities. Not because they're doing anything violent, just because they didn't like their political yeah. persuasions and we're yeah. trying to stop them. So why is this institution an institution worthy of trust? Yeah. Why is this institution an institution we would like to work with to try and, and I, I won't say work with, because I think we have to work with all institutions. Mm -hmm. But why would this be an institution we want to put all of our faith in? And defer to. And defer to and say, yeah. like, yes, you are the source of morality yeah. and justice, and you are the pathway to goodness in the world. This is literally an organization that killed Fred Hampton, that tried to get Martin Luther King Jr. to commit suicide, and spread sexually transmitted diseases through nonviolent activist communities, and primarily people of color, just because they didn't like their politics. Yeah. Right? There has to be another model. And it doesn't mean disengage entirely. And I think one of the good things about the work you've done over the years, and, and I will say the same is true of, of Josh and Meun too, to some extent, um, although I disagree with some of the stuff they do. I, I disagree with stuff that everybody does. They're all really good people. Is I think you've done a very good job of trying to play the inside and the outside game. 
over the years. And that's one of the things I really respect about you because you, you, you understand strategic impact litigation, like the false advertising stuff. You also understand the importance of pushing the envelope through things like open rescue. Cause one of the only ways we're going to get the information we need and pose the challenge to the advertising infrastructure, which is the narrative structure mm-hmm. of our entire society around mm-hmm. food is for some people to take direct action and say, look, look, this is a story you're told. This is the true story of what's happening. And this is a story of what could be right. You know, when you have those three stories, you create change. That's right. And so, I think, you're, I mean, the, you need, when you say work with the system, I think for me, it's just seeing that you see this system, legal system instrumentally. You don't see it as an end in and of itself. You see it as a means to get to an end. So when I bring a climate case uh, before a court and the case says the governmental processes are illegitimate and cannot produce law if they don't result in this, uh, if they don't create this result, I'm seen to be saying something contradictory. I'm using a court system, but I'm saying that court system has no authority unless it determines that there's a right to nature. That's not inconsistent. I'm just Mm -hmm. using the system instrumentally, but I'm not giving it inherent worth. The inherent worth is the end of the, of nature. And I, you know, we're talking about whether you can use the legal system as whether it's legitimate direct action in opposition to it as if I want to be clear, there is a baseline test for, for whether a particular system is the sort of thing that we're critiquing or whether it's not. And I think the test is whether it uses coercion Mm. to achieve its ends. The legal system that we're talking about now relies on coercion and incentive to achieve its end. It doesn't have the consensus of the Mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. subject to it. If you had a functional democracy, arguably you wouldn't need consensus because the rules were made by the people who were subject. So why would you need to compel them? Uh, So it goes back to the point that- You don't mean that there's no force used at all. Do you? I think you would have. Is that well, what you're envisioning? A legal system that doesn't use coercion at all? Or do you mean, like, there's a more limited claim you can make, which is a legal, co- legal system that primarily uses coercion, which it, is where we are now. I think it is coercion. A lot of people yeah. comply with the legal system just because they're afraid. It might mean. be completely scaled so that the more coercion required, the less legitimate your system sure. is okay. because it's yeah, yeah, evidence yeah, that, yeah. that people are not consenting. Uh, and to the extent that this. You know, the very system that would protect animals. You're a little bit of an anarchist, Carter. (laughs) Are you? Well, to the extent that we need to create people who would have a functional system, and it's not functional now, that I think we live in an... I mean, look, am I protected by a legal system? If I go down the street right now Mm -hmm. and I'm knifed to death, I won't believe that I was part of a functional system. Sure, I'll believe in it up until the point that happens. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So I would prefer a system where we were creating empathetic people likely to be uh, following rules because they view the rules as their own rather than being subject to coercion. So to your point, the only reason I raise this point is because if you ever get critiqued for, oh, I'm an outsider who's doing direct action against the system, against the man, the system you're critiquing uses violence to achieve its ends. Mm -hmm. At best, it uses money to pay people off because they come into the world in abject poverty and they're easy to coerce through, uh, easy to dissuade through money mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to achieve its ends. How could that possibly yeah, be admirable? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're not critiquing a good thing. Uh, so I have respect for the work you do in part because the system yeah. basically relies on coercion. That is itself is a problem. We're yeah. just so ingrained to think that's what the legal system yeah, is. And I will say you don't have to have as pessimistic a view uh, as, as yours, Carter, or even yeah. mine. Like I yeah. think I'm, Maybe not entirely with you. I probably have a more positive view of the legal system, surprisingly, even though I'm facing all these felonies <laughs> than you do. Um, but p- 
part of what me makes me really believe in direct action is I think there are people who are kind of law and order types and and still see direct action and civil disobedience as sort of a, a safety valve, yeah. a check on the system. So yeah. yes, we absolutely should yeah. comply with the system and the system is functioning. But yet nonetheless, even if you look through American history, and this is not like radical anarchist politics. This is like democracy 101 mm -hmm. that's taught in junior high schools. I mean, everybody sees Susan B. Anthony and Martin Luther King and, and the early you know, anti-slavery actors and, and even the revolutionaries you know, mm -hmm. that started the American Republic. We see them as heroes. They were all doing direct action and civil disobedience. Mm -hmm. They were not just following the rules unthinkingly because as with the Stanley Milgram experiment, someone told you to keep doing it even though it seems stupid. Right? They weren't torturing human beings or animals just because some person in a code or somebody who's got more money than me or my boss told me, yeah, I don't care about those cries. You're just going to keep doing that. They listened to those cries and said, you know what? No, I'm an independent thinker. I have some ability to assess what a good system is and what a bad system is. And in fact, our entire system depends in part on people like me who are whistleblowers, who are dissidents, who will point out when our system has gone in the wrong direction. And I'm not going to follow the rules this time. Yeah. And then the rule changes. Yeah. You know, that's, that is how the rules change. Part, part of the reason I really believe in direct action is if you believe in rules, if you believe in our system of justice and laws, we need people to remedy it when right. it's gone badly. Otherwise, the entire project will fail. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, you're, if the whole idea is that free people mm -hmm. uh, and they're following the rules without thought, without critiquing those rules, they're not free. Yeah, they're, they're not, not free. actually living as free. Uh, funny you didn't mention John that's Brown. That's China and Russia. You yeah. Know, that's China and Russia today. Well, you don't have the right to dissent. Oh, and, and it's funny because fair start work there looks totally different. I'll talk about that some yeah. other point. But it's funny you didn't mention John Brown, but when COK did one of their investigations, mm -hmm. they were so proud that the farm was on John Brown Road somewhere wow. in the backwoods yeah. of Maryland. I'm not the biggest fan of John Brown. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the, <laughs> the slaughtering a, people is always yeah, a way Yeah, he killed go. a bunch of people. And so I'm, I'm like very down to nonviolent activism. I don't think violent activism is particularly effective. Yeah. Um, I, I, don't, I don't doubt he had very good motivations. I think he was trying to do the right thing. But like you got to understand, my family's history is from Mao Zedong yeah. in communist China. And violence there, you know, for a good cause, um, yeah. led to a lot of decimation and deaths. And, and that's my family's story. You know, we say... Like, I think most of the people in my family acknowledge that the nationalists, like our side, my family's on the wrong side of that civil war, yeah. but the devolution of that movement, yeah. fighting for peasants and working class people, legitimate cause, like yeah. dictators were murdering yeah. people who, because they're poor, who resisted. But when they started using violence in response, it created a totalitarian state that murdered more people than any state in the history of human civilization. No, like I think Mao is the greatest killer yeah. in history, and it's because yeah. he didn't have that limitation. He didn't say to yeah. himself, look, they're doing injustice and they're killing people. I have to bet in that. Right. Let's not devolve to what they're doing. And John Brown made the same mistake. No, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. And so, I mean, for, so for the record, Fair Start is nonviolent. Good. Uh, well, it makes me happy. <laughs> if, you, if you might believe in the primacy of an obligation, like being fair existentially, that may override all of their obligations. It doesn't endorse violence because violence would counteract the process of creating a fair system. Yeah, yeah. If you started to use violence to try to force, unless they used violence to reappropriate resources to incentivize people and, and to entitle their children to a fair start in life, the backlash mm -hmm. would probably undo it. Yeah, so, I agree. Um, to be clear, but I, yeah. I, but there's also just like an intrinsic moral reason, in my view. Yeah. It's not just a pragmatic, instrumental reason that violence causes a backlash. To me, I think there's something about the act of coercion, mm -hmm. especially. You know, coercion can come in various forms, but especially 
physical violence yeah. used for coercion or threats of physical violence that just goes against the strand of who we should be. Yeah. It's, it's, this, is, this is where I'm a little non-utilitarian. I was going to say, I, you yeah, sound I mean, like yeah, Kantian I don't sound like much of a utilitarian. No, I, so I, we could, I don't want to go down this rabbit yeah, hole, sure. but I like to think of ethics as like a modular system in the following sense. I, I think I've said this before on the podcast. I compare it to physics in that there are different theories that operate at different scales and in different contexts. So if you're looking at the universal scale, relativity makes sense. Yeah. You can think of like the entire world in terms of waves and everything's mm -hmm. kind of like a, in a wave pattern and, and that mathematical system, those theories make sense. When you look at the world on a very small scale, you have to use a standard model. And there's a totally different theoretical and mathematical structure to explaining what you're observing. And they seem totally inconsistent at times, but they're both accurate. They yeah. both make valid predictions. And I think the same is true of morality. Mm. When you think at a big scale, utilitarianism makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. You have to look at benefits and costs and what's making people happier or causing suffering. But then when you dive down to the individual level and you look at an individual case, you almost have to throw that out the window and say, look, we just have to look at what's right. What are the rights and what are the systems that work best? Like the Kantian categorical yeah. imperative. What, what works best for an entire society? Let's set aside what makes sense in terms of cost and benefits for this individual and like whether we can do something weird that will maximize utility and just say, like, what's the right thing to do? Yeah. And I think one of the things you conclude when you take that micro level analysis is that violence is almost always wrong. Like I, I even think self-defense is wrong probably in most contexts. Yeah. Like, I think if someone's trying to kill you, you probably have a duty not to fight back. Hmm. I could be wrong. But anyways, um, we've gone two hours and this has been really interesting. And I want to, but the, there's a couple things I 100% want to ask you about. One is your latest project with Justin, because I haven't even talked to Justin yeah. about this in too much detail. It's a fascinating project. This is Justin Marceau. He's been on the podcast. Go listen to that podcast because it's, 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 it's got some crazy stories and I didn't even know some of the stuff about Justin. Like, he was in the Navy. Did you know this? Uh, yeah, he was a no, pilot. No, no, Air Force. Yeah, it was Air Force, yeah. Air Force. He was in the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And he was planning to like fly fighter jets around and shoot yeah. people down. And now he's like protecting people on death row and animals, which yeah. is a huge transition in his life. <laughs> and just listen to that story about how he went from being like, you know, someone who was just dressing up in those weird outfits and, you know, like <laughs> flying fighter pilots to like defending people on death row and defending yeah. like the most vulnerable animals and living beings on this earth, including inmates and animals. Um, but you've got this new project with him I want to talk to you about. But one thing I also want to talk to you about is just this shift from doing this, what you saw as very effective ragtag grassroots activism to working for the largest animal organization in the world and then eventually becoming the litigation director of ALDF. Tell me about that shift. How did that happen? What are your feelings about it now with the benefit of 15 years of hindsight? Yeah, I mean, we wanted, those of us that left Compassion Over Killing to go to HSUS wanted to have a bigger impact. Okay. We wanted the resources sure. and the scale that was being offered and Wayne Paselli and- So uh, did they come to you or did you come to them initially? You know, I was sort of late in the process, so I don't know really? the answer. My gut is knowing Wayne Paselli and the fact that he was grabbing up groups and pulling them into HSUS. Yeah. Um, is my guess is he probably reached out to people okay. at COK. Because this is the time when HSUS is like merging with Fun for Animals. They're merging like with lots of groups. All these groups are coming to HSUS. Yeah. And he, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, he and Nancy and we're, we're and I, I'm going to say Nancy Perry. I don't even know what that is. Yeah, Nancy Perry was critical to all of this. She's vice president, uh, I believe it was part of their legislative affairs program okay. at the time. At HSUS. Yeah. So Nancy and Wayne come to you and Josh and Mune and Paul, 
um, and you're late in this process and say like, join us. I'm assuming that That's they were happening. the ones because of the I'm way that they, they were. I'm surprised they didn't groups. tell you about this earlier because you're the general counsel. On it. Yeah, you're actually the person who's going to be legally responsible for hearing. I mean, at sixteen thousand a year, they were lucky okay, to get my yeah, attention. Yeah. I no, we were doing. I mean, I was like trying to get money back for dysfunctional, you know, camera undercover okay. cameras. We you're busy with other things. It was a political. I mean, also, I mean, let's let's be clear. Merging with an organization like that is not like you know, two investment banks coming together. It's, sure. it, it, yeah. it was not a There's legal no process. Yeah. yeah. I'm mean, that, that we even had an agreement, but I, they were hiring people up. There wasn't okay. a merger. Okay. So it was just basically hiring the people hiring and up. then the COK. Yeah. For the work that they were doing and defunct or it doesn't come defunct. It just yeah. passes on to Erica. And we did, we did other good work at HSUS. I mean, we scaled okay. it. I became the director of farmed animal litigation and we did other cases there that were okay. somewhat successful. Was John um, Laverne your boss? He was. Wow. Yeah. And that was six years. For those of you who are just listening, my face just went a little weird. I'm not going to talk too much shit about John. John, John is, he does incredible things. And he actually just filed a lawsuit against uh, Smithfield. Oh, good. Did you hear about this? I it's didn't a false hear. advertising lawsuit. Oh, great. Yeah. And they, they used some of our photos and video. They didn't tell us about it beforehand, but they, they did use it. No, I'm, but I'm glad about that. Like, yeah, yeah. I think it's great that they flattery. used our photos and videos. It's yeah. flattery. Yeah. Um, it's about gestation crates, just the false advertising, the false promise they made. I'll send yeah. you the complaint afterwards. It's yeah. A, it's a very good complaint. They do. Say what you want about HSUS and John Laverne. He does good work. Great cases. Yeah. He and does, we did great work. We did great cases together. Uh, and I, but, but the reasons that I'll end, I, whatever we're doing to protect animals is like putting little cobblestones together against this tide of growth. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't ignore that. And after, having sort of ignored population issues for about six years, mm-hmm. I decided to leave HSUS and go back to do uh, two to three years of intense research and wow. teaching. Okay. Uh, taught, I did an LLM at NYU where I boiled down the right to have children into the, the thesis and wrote it under Jeremy Waldron. Oh, wow. Uh, That's right. I did know that. Yeah. Jeremy Waldron is amazing. Well, he's his a great rights theorist. so important. I yeah. mean, he makes, his stuff makes a lot of sense. He and, and Dworkin are the most important rights theorists of the last hundred years. And I, I mean, you got to know those two names. The funny Ronald thing is, Dworkin, like, Jeremy Waldron. I feel like yeah. economists and utilitarians, like they operate in, in this a contextual utilitarian. I knew you worked under Jeremy Waldron. That doesn't make any yeah, sense. I think it, yeah. Anyways, go it's ahead. It's like a contextual, like, their thinking is like they could just ignore everything and try to come up with a quantification mm-hmm. system, ignore the history. Yeah. Why, why do we have human rights? Yeah. World War II. Mm-hmm. We had human rights because this is what happens when we don't have an international forum where we agree upon basic systems where democracy should flourish. You said we should come up with a rule at the table here mm-hmm. with norms so that we can feed your child. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, it's so I, cute you called him my child. I you, love that. You need it's a, my cat, but my yeah. cat is my child. He's my adopted child. Thank you, Carter. You're welcome. <laughs> if you didn't have a right to speak freely, there wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. How would we sit around this table and come up with such a norm? Yeah. So you, it, the bottom line is I, I wanted to do the population work, went back through Waldron and, mm-hmm. and then spent two years researching and writing in New Orleans. And then uh, Steve Wells, uh, offered mm-hmm. me a position at the Animal Legal Defense Fund. And I decided I didn't want to do academia. Okay. I really think like people get paid to think. That's yeah. not what I want to do. That's Why didn't like, you want to do academia? You've done so much I was low impact. Just low impact? Super yeah. low impact. I also hated grading papers. Have you said just, have you told Justin this? <laughs> I have not told Justin. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. 
Justin's you know what I mean? an academic. He's a professor at the University of Denver. I made some... Who does a lot of litigation. He's <laughs> yeah. not just an academic. He's, yeah. he's a very non-traditional academic. That's the point. Yeah. The point no, is like... amazing I, litigation. That, that's the point. I mean, mm-hmm. what I was doing was pure academia and teaching. Sure. And what I thought was, no, I know how to litigate. Yeah. And I want to go back and litigate. And then also write. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, rather than grading papers and teaching, mm-hmm. you could litigate. That's the clinician stuff. And then you could still write and do yeah. academia. And so that was it. It was okay. just to do that, and that, that happened with ALDF. Can I ask you, how long were you at HSUS? Six I'd years. Actually, six years? Yeah. Wow, so this is like 2005? Four, 2004, five. we transitioned out of COK, and I leave HSUS 2010. 2010, uh, eight, wow. 2009, I think. Ten. Yeah. Okay, nine. And then you go to do this, this program at NYU, work under Jeremy Waldron. What did Jeremy Waldron think of animal rights? We didn't talk about it. Really? Why yeah. not? I mean, it didn't come up because I said... That's so shocking to me because you had been at COK and HSUS right before. Yeah. <laughs> that must makes me think he's not a good mentor. <laughs> he's written... He's, well, it's interesting. He didn't... He, he's written about it recently. Has he really? Yeah. Uh, but it was... That's awesome. I mean, I simply said, look, this whole business of the right to have children is completely misunderstood. Okay, Help so me... You, you were focused on population stuff at that yeah. point. So that's how we knew you. That was a scholarship you're working yeah. on. So and he probably wouldn't... Sense. He would probably never characterize his population. Okay. He would simply say, we're trying to understand the right Human to have rights. children. Yeah. Because saying that it can disregard the rights of future children doesn't seem yeah. to make a lot of sense. Yeah. They seem to be the ones that care about it the most. You know, I have to confess, I didn't even know Jeremy Waldron was still alive. Yeah, I thought he's he really great writing. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, Dworkin passed away. Yeah, I know Dworkin passed away because yeah. Dworkin was, it's interesting again because I'm very mm-hmm. much a utilitarian, but Dworkin was the first rights thinker mm-hmm. who just kind of blew me away and made me think, okay, I don't actually understand how political and moral and even legal systems function, you know, because he, and actually it isn't even his famous book, like Taking Rights Seriously wasn't the book that did it for me. Mm-hmm. It was a piece, it was actually a piece in a volume that I, I think Jeremy Waldron edited. Okay. It's called Consequentialism and its Critics. Okay. Have you heard of this volume? Yeah, I have. I think Waldron is the one who edited yeah, it. Yeah. He, Waldron's got a great piece in yeah. that volume too. But um, Ronald Dworkin has this piece on, you know, basically, I, I'm going to butcher the argument. It's, it's, it's bad because it's a brilliant argument, so I feel bad butchering it. But basically saying that any utilitarian or consequential system has to have some basic rights as its foundation. Yeah. And I'd never heard that argument before. And, and the idea is, so for example utilitarians for the most part think like, hey, we should do this mathematical calculation and measure everyone's utility, but everyone should be equal. You know, we don't measure like Carter higher than Wayne or Andre lower than Carter because, you know, and then the question is why, right? Or even the basic question of why does suffering matter? You know, that's like a a deontological principle that you, you, you're just generalizing from the experience of one and looking at an individual case the way Kant did and saying, okay. And the question is, if you have these foundational principles underlying the entire utilitarian system, why can't they come into play later on too yeah. and override one of the utilitarian yeah. calculations because they're more foundational than the calculation of utility. Right. I, I just butchered the argument. Go no. read the piece by Ronald Dworkin because it's, it's, it, it is... You said it in your opposition to violence. You yeah, already I did, I did. You lived it on no, this podcast. No, I did because that, that is just a foundational right. principle that right. I have that kind of overrides everything else. You just right. don't, you don't do that. Because, but it, again, it's not just because it leads to bad outcomes. You know, that's, it's not because a consequentialist or a utilitarian could say, oh, that's just a rule. And I understand that's a rule you impose because, but I really think it's just, it's part of the fabric of consciousness that it it is a violation of who we are as conscious beings to inflict violence on others. And I think Walter would call it dignity. Yeah, I think he would. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still in touch with him? Uh, Lightly. Lightly? I mean, because we, you know, as fair start turns to, to 
more radical yeah. stuff. It, it, depart, it departs academia, so it doesn't sure, make sure. sense. Yeah. What did he? What did he write about animals recently? Just out of curiosity. Well, um, I only heard a critique of it, so I haven't read Interesting. it. But the okay. at least the critique was that uh, that the way animal rights could be characterized could be a threat to human rights, which hmm. is not. You know, not it doesn't have to be characterized that way. But so that in was some the critique of his position. That's right. So I can't. You know, this okay. is me talking out of my ass because I have yeah, not yeah. read his position. Okay. I only heard someone critiquing it. Yeah, I got to find it because I. Walden, yeah, it was like Walden a year is, ago. Yeah, he's he's brilliant and has had so much influence in the way people think. And and I mean, honestly, I think if he could become a Jerry Waldron, being an academic is a road to impact. The problem is there oh, are very yeah, few well, Jeremy Waldrons and Ronald Dworkins and Cass Sunsteins yeah. and a lot of people like me <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> who go into the academy uh-huh. and write one paper and like flail around and try and write other stuff and no one cares. And it's like, wow, I just spent 10 years of my life doing nothing. <laughs> yeah, no. <I laughs> so mean, it's like not the best path for most people because uh, right. most of us are not Jeremy Waldron or Cass Sunstein. I will say though, I mean, I think, I think Cass is just a better academic than me. Obviously, I mean, that's not saying much because he's, but I also think there, there's a lot of randomness in it. I think there's a lot of randomness if you happen to be, and I think a lot of the superstar academics would say the same, that a lot of what makes academics great is their movements that push something into the zeitgeist that then becomes prominent and their work becomes important. Right. You know, and I, I think there's probably feedback loop. Academics can help us think about movements in society and philosophy in different ways that will feed movements. But to me, the causality definitely runs mostly in the former and less mm-hmm. in the latter. I think that's that, right. These movements are driving ideas like Black Lives Matter now. You know, that's if, right. If you're writing about police brutality, I mean, 20 years ago, who cares? I'm mean, 25 years ago when they wrote the crime bill. It's like you get fired. I mean, no one cares about this. Like you should be writing about how we stop crime. That's, yeah, that's what everyone's caring about. You don't have to be part of the structure to write truth. Yeah, there's nothing about an academic appointment that makes whatever they say more or less true. Yeah, it's just a title. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think you're, uh, you found an area of research that you're writing truth, you should do it. Yeah. Uh, and it doesn't require being part of the political structure, which is sure. what the academy is. Yeah. So, two questions about the move to ALDF. One is, why back to animals if you went to NYU to write about mm-hmm. population and human rights? And the second is, while they're different organizations, to me, HSUS and ALDF still represent a similar organizational model in terms of activism, that's very different from what you did at COK with Josh and Miyun and Paul. So I guess my first question is why animals? And second, why, or maybe not even why, but what impact and how did you feel moving from that ragtag $16,000 a year job, but everyone's like in it together and like, you know, we're a band of brothers together and sisters, obviously. Um, But the first question first, why back to animals? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I internalized that opinion that I could write and research and produce truth mm. on the right to have children without being part of the academy. Okay. And so if I'm not going to teach, if I'm not going to grade papers, if I'm not going to sit in faculty meetings and committee nonsense. I have all this free time. Yeah. How would I use it effectively? So I'd much rather be a litigator, r- academic writer mm-hmm. than part of the academy structure. Yeah. So then... Uh, Why not know, litigate population cases, though, instead of animal cases? Very hard to do. I mean, yeah. after 10 years of doing the research, we're only now getting our first cases off the Interesting. ground. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't, I you're even, not going to sue anyone right. for I having even, too many kids. Exactly. <laughs> that doesn't exist. It's like, yeah. Like, that very, sounds like a terrible lawsuit, too. Right. It's going to be the end of your movement. No, <laughs> I mean. sue people for having too many I kids. Mean, there, I mean, we could, there are hundreds of ways to do it. You could sue 
uh, a victim could sue parents for yeah. failure to oversee a child that commits murder. Sure. And you would create down pressure on bad parenting once parents realize that they're mm-hmm. liable for what their children do. Yeah. But it's very, it's, I mean, yeah. if you think litigating for animals is hard, sure. litigating yeah, for family future, planning is, yeah. a, is a very complex yeah, area. It, it's probably mostly a policy kind of question at this point. Not a, not well, a legal, we have rights cases. Question. We, have, we have litigation. We have okay. six or seven cases that we've outlined for the next couple of years. Okay. I'd be interested in those. Uh, yeah, Send well, we need pro bono. I'm going to see what the theory... <laughs> you know, I will say one thing about you too is that I, I, I messaged the, the false advertising stuff in passing and, and said you've done foundational work, which you, I think you have. One of the other things about your work is it's, it's, it's very creative. Um, oh, and you were the first person who brought to me the idea of using Haven standing, mm. which is legal concept that we don't want to belabor too much, but the basic idea is in the American legal system, you have to be injured in some way in order to bring a lawsuit. And Havens was a case that allowed organizations that had a mission that was frustrated to bring a lawsuit, even if they didn't lose anything financially, um, none of their employees or staff members or members were physically injured or harmed in some material way, but because your organizational mission was frustrated, you could bring a lawsuit. And I think you're the person who like, decided to try to use this for animals, right? There may have been, I, I can't honestly, can't remember. I'm, I always assume that some, I'm standing on the shoulder of some other giant because I yeah. didn't, I, I think th- someone else had, must have brought one first, but I do remember, I certainly remember bringing the cases and talking about them yeah. with you because uh, it seemed to make sense. And I don't, at the time, we did not read published precedent that included its use in animal protection. Yeah. There was no published precedent, I can tell you that. Did, did I, have I ever told you what my initial reaction was when you brought this to me? You probably thought it wasn't very good. I thought it was crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you started, like, it's actually worked, though. There's it has. A number of courts it's been limited, unfortunately. Yeah, but, it has been limited, but it's, it's, it's but shocking again, to me. But this, yeah. is, but this is how change happens. This yeah. is why we need people like you doing creative, like, quote unquote crazy shit because I mean the first person like Susan B. Anthony when she voted everyone thought she was crazy it's like you're a woman what do you mean you were going to vote and try and like bring a criminal case and litigate the idea that this is a denial of um, what amendment were they do you know remember the legal theory for Susan B. Anthony there's some constitutional theory they had I think it might have been like the privileges and immunities clause I don't remember that it was something like that, but they okay. had some legal theory that was absolutely wacko. And actually, I don't think their theory ultimately prevailed, but they did pass the 19th Amendment. Is it 19th Amendment? Right to vote for women? Anyone know their history? All right, someone will I should me. know that. I think it's 19th. So, but th- the fact that she was willing to pursue this crazy legal theory led 20 years later to a constitutional amendment that enshrined the right to vote for all women. And that's one of the things I really like about you, like this openness you have to new ideas and new approaches. And even when I've disagreed with them, I think we need so much more of that in movements. When we talked to Erica Chenoweth, um, this very prominent Harvard scholar who studied mm-hmm. all sorts of movements through hundreds of years, and she's a quantitative social scientist, a political scientist who studies why movements fail and why they succeed. One of the things she told us, because like, we asked her for advice, we said, okay, you've, one, one piece of advice she's most known for is nonviolence is better. Mm-hmm. Again, I think nonviolence is better because it's ethical too, not just because it's strategic, but even if you didn't care about violence and nonviolence from an ethical perspective, her data shows that nonviolent movements succeed more often. Yeah, you should be nonviolent. It's going to be an expectation better for your movement. But the other piece of advice she gave us was good movements innovate. That's good. 100%. Mm-hmm. That bad movements do the same shit over and over again. Good movements innovate. And, and so this is why I think, like this is why I'm doing the podcast. And I want people to think about these things and like think about this innovation you had. I think it was you. I mean, I, your first time I heard of it was you, definitely you. Haven standing. The idea like, hey, we can sue a factory farm even if... Because the problem is always, 
you know, Cass Sunstein's written about mm. this. The problem always was like, hey, the animals are being tortured, but we're not. What do right. we do? Like, we can't do anything. You know, we're just kind of stuck. We can try and bring a case and, mm. you know, even do open rescues so we get thrown into the legal system so we can make a case somehow out of this. But first of all, the animal, well, actually, there are two problems. One is the animals are being injured, not us. And second is the animals are not persons. So it right. doesn't matter that they're being injured. They're just property. So you can't bring a case for an animal. Yeah. And Havens was a way to get around this. Yeah. You know, that was beautiful and elegant. But I didn't think that at the time. Now I do. Like I've come around well, to it. <laughs> I mean, and it's it's pure. It's a perfect example of when I talk about the legal system being rigged yeah. and biased, essentially. It is uh, yeah. to protect, protect the power structure. Because I think the judges that limited Haven's use mm-hmm. in animal cases, and some arguments would say, well, they didn't like the case. They, they said the cases weren't properly structured that brought the negative precedent. But I think, honestly, reading the opinions, it was if those cases had been about protecting humans. The yeah, judges would we, have we no problem. I agree. But if what the judges thought in their mind yeah. was, my God, these lawyers have found a way to take away my burgers or drive up the price. Yeah. Like, that's all they cared about. And Matthew Liebend wrote a great article, I think, what the judge had for, who the judge ate for breakfast, hmm. who the judge had for breakfast, about legal realism. Interesting. And animal rights from a legal realism perspective. Yeah. Uh, again. You, you Which is basically look- the idea that judges aren't really making their decision based on the law. It's in just, my experience, it's just their political views. I would, or, you, you would have to be a yeah. babe in the woods to think that a judge is going to decide your case. Look at the Supreme Court today. Yeah. Look so, at the Supreme Court today. And, no one thinks that, oh, each yeah. of these judges is just making a legal judgment. And they're you have they're to basing hold, their preferences, their judgments on you have to hold, this is You have to hold groups and their lawyers to account yeah. for using a system that they should have known was in some ways broken or dysfunctional or corrupt. You're not going to let these groups off the hook for saying, well, we were just following, we were complying with the law. We were using the system that everyone agreed to and we should be excused. If doing that meant that you were part of a process that inflicted mass suffering, mm-hmm. especially in future generations, because you chose uh, you know, to follow like old precedent on climate crisis instead of maybe engaging in direct action or trying cutting edge cases. Lawyers and groups are just as responsible for the their yeah. decisions and the impact of those decisions on people, especially those in the future. So I don't, yeah, it's I not an excuse to say, well, it was the legal system, so we just yeah. followed it. This is what the prosecutor said. This is what the judge said, what the congressperson said. You are responsible for investing in that system as opposed to something else yeah. if it turns out that that system is as broken as it looks like it is today. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, this is something my buddy John, you know, uh, always says about prosecutors, that your, your duty is to justice, not to any particular statute or any particular outcome or interpretation of the statute. Your yeah. duty, first and foremost, is to justice. Because they have and discretion. The, and the, uh, discretion, and, and because there's so many principles in the Constitution yeah. that are justice-based principles. Equal We're, protection of the law, due process under law. We, we've constructed a nation-state around the idea that wise lawyers and judges will interpret these very vague ideas. I mean, what the hell does free speech mean? What the hell yeah. does equal protection mean? In a way that serves justice, not just enforces the laws of the land. Correct. And, and, so, yeah. strict and, and so few lawyers do this. Oh, and that's it's Dworkin. So few lawyers. Yeah, this is Dworkin too. You wouldn't need, you wouldn't, have, you wouldn't aspire to do that. Yeah. If, the if philosopher you kings, the whatever. What he called Hercules. Yeah, yeah, the Hercules, yeah. yeah. No. no, it's true. Um, so y- y- I want to ask you about just the, the critique you have yeah. Animal Law now, because you've been in Animal Law, really, I mean, I, I sort of see it since its infancy. I mean, you, like I see you um, and Steve Wise and, and Joyce as like all people who have been like at the beginning of Animal Law, because I, I was not doing Animal Law back then. I mean, I was baby vegan and baby activist like in 2004. 
Um, over the last 15 years, what lessons have you drawn and what do you think the failings of animal law are? And what do you think the biggest opportunities? Let's start with the failings. What do you think has worked well? I mean, in some ways, I think animal law is a misnomer. Hmm. Uh, I think you could say that all law in some ways is a misnomer if it's not uh, referring to a group of participatory uh a participating group of persons to create norms, norms yeah. that they agree with. And we might use a benchmark. Do we have to use coercion to enforce mm -hmm. the law? If we do, maybe they don't agree with them. But if you don't account for creating people fairly mm -hmm. so that they're part of a, a participatory system of free and equal people, mm -hmm. it's hard to call it law. You definitely shouldn't call it animal law mm -hmm. because animal law presumes that non-humans will exist and probably that they'll be self-determining. Mm -hmm. If your legal system is, if you're if you're part of a system where you're not dealing with the creation of people, you're ignoring that issue. Um, you're not one. You're not respecting the non-human world mm -hmm. because you're starting from a baseline of well, we can have as many children in any conditions mm -hmm. as we want. That that is existentially destructive. You just the concept has destroyed the non-human world. And that's not just conceptual, it's the practice of humans have done that. So, I mean, I have, a, I have a problem with anyone claiming to be part of a legal system that doesn't support fair start. I definitely have a problem with anyone that claims to be doing animal protection. If every claim they make starts with a basic concept where humans can override, mm -hmm. uh, over, overrun the planet, mm -hmm. where we don't take with regard to the empathetic nature of people, their civic quality, how they will interact with people and how that derives from their childhood. Yeah. We don't take regard to the number of people in a democracy and the fact that with every new person, each person has less time at the podium. We don't take with regard with the fact that some children will be born in abject poverty, some will be born with billion dollar trust funds. Those children born in poverty, without a doubt, with few exceptions, will be working for largely enslaved by, if you believe in Elizabeth Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, your employers control your lives, not the government, the, the enslaved by those billionaire children. Yeah. If you start from a, if you start from a perspective that doesn't begin with fair start, you embrace a view of the world hmm. that eradicates non-humans, does it through inequity, does it through lack of civic quality, does it through non-participatory democracies, does it through growth. So I definitely, I have a problem with anyone who talks about a legal system devoid of people that. and yeah. the, how we create them. And I definitely have a problem with animal. I think it's my critique of, of Francione would be, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Veganism. You're talking about a tiny percent of, peach, of people and what they consume. Mm -hmm. That has nothing to do with animal liberation. Mm -hmm. Your concept has to start with the creation of persons, create them in a world where they share it with non-humans, where they interact, they do so with empathy. That's consistent with a better democracy and it's consistent with human rights. So his, this sort of vision- like the foundation of, of everything. It works. Because it, it's, it's literally when we come into existence. That's intersectionality. So if you don't have a theory of what we do and what rights we have when we come into existence and everything else just seems like it's falling apart. It's, it's also all, linguistic. You, yeah. can't, you can't say anything or think anything without a pronoun at the beginning that's a group we. Mm -hmm. And that group we has gotta be a way that you can participate small enough. Yeah. It's gotta be empathetic enough that people are not, they don't require coercion to follow the laws. It's gotta be equal enough mm -hmm. so that they're actually participating, not just getting bought off by the top down. And so what I'm saying is I think it, it's, it's kind of like a joke to me that we have people talking about animal rights and what they mean 
is this 6% of people who are going to consume, not consume animal products is, is this target audience. Mm -hmm. And what they're ignoring is the fact that their initial premise is this human supremacy that wipes everything out. And that's the history of this planet. Yeah. Now that is the fundamental cause of the climate crisis. Yeah. So again, I don't think, I mean, it's hard to think of any of these people as animal rights activists when they started from a baseline premise of human supremacy. And now sure. the consequences of that premise are unfolding upon us. To me, it's kind of like, it's, it's almost like a fantasy world. Yeah. Like you're not an animal rights person if you don't believe in creating people in a way that's consistent with animal liberation. Yeah. To me, that's the beginning of it. So Damn, that's my critique. you're coming down hard, my friend. Sorry. Coming down hard. I mean, as, as the climate- hurt feelings after this podcast. As the climate crisis good. unfolds, the, yeah. the question is, for the past 40 years, the people that could have made a difference yeah. didn't do the right things. Yeah, yeah. They chose the wrong issues. Yeah. And people are suffering because of that mistake. And so, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, for me, it's, it's a litmus test. Do you believe in fairness? Well, yeah. Do you believe in creating people fairly? Exactly. Yeah. That's the answer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, I mean, this, I'm surprised we haven't disagreed more in this podcast. Although like, I'm not that surprised because I, I have always admired the work you're doing on, on human rights and, and the right to bear children. But um, this resonates with me particularly strongly because I was just, I, I did a little short presentation yesterday on a number of things, but the title of the presentation, which you probably don't like, and I actually don't like either, um, and I won't even explain why I don't like it, but it was a presentation, just a few minutes, called Inequality Starts With What We Eat, and make a lot of arguments, and you know, even going back to the first carnivores 800 million years ago, and how they really devised and evolved this ability to use domination and consumption as a way of life. You know, instead of building or harvesting, you just dominate others, and fortunately, it's been a very successful way of life. There's more carnivores species in the history of planet earth and far more actually than herbivores or omnivores or i guess omnivores would be included in carnivores under this typology um, but actually for most of life's history carnivores didn't exist most people don't know this that life has been around for 3.5 million years or billion years carnivores have been le around less than a billion you know so like one fourth of the history of life is carnivores like animals that eat other animals that are sent eat other sentient beings but the reason this came up is uh the most dominant carnivore slash omnivore in the history of the planet earth as far as we know is the human being mm -hmm. and it's 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 astonishing when you look at the biomass data so like uh in any sliver of time whether it's thirteen thousand years ago actually i'm not 100 percent sure about thirteen thousand years ago because i haven't seen at least a numerical breakdown but i know there's a lot of qualitative anecdotal accounts of all the charismatic megafauna we eliminated mm -hmm. even before the inception yep. of agriculture but especially agriculture and domestication of animals and the use of all the land and the water and the, the resources that, that stemmed from, you know, when we put that first yoke on an animal and decided yeah. you are now my slave, you are going to be mine. I will consume you. But I wish I could show the chart and, and maybe if, given that we have video this time, mm -hmm. we can actually put this on the video at least. It just shows the biomass of the planet earth, um, all the terrestrial animals like mammals, birds, and, uh, they're, just look at mammals, for example. They're about 5,500, I think it's 5,500, maybe it's 5,300, somewhere around 5,000 total terrestrial land-based mammals on the planet Earth. Um, there's one human being, and then there's about 14 livestock animals. Yeah. So the vast majority, in terms of species, of the land animals on the planet Earth and land mammals are not human beings or livestock. But then when you look at biomass, like in other words, just the weight, how much like physical space yeah. we're occupying, like 99%, unbelievable, about... One fourth of the total biomass of the planet Earth is human beings. Like we just, there's a lot of us and we're all over the place. And then even, maybe even more shockingly, like about three fourths of the biomass is the animals we have enslaved to consume. 
Like, so not only are we the apex predator, but our predation has eliminated all other life on this planet. Yeah. We've displaced everything. And so, so like, this is why your argument, it has a lot of sway with me, notwithstanding my personal preferences. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, maybe, maybe I need to meditate more and be more reflective. Sometimes I think I'm a hypocrite. And I think, man, I should really be down for what Carter's saying. I, I, dis- I disagree. I think you're, if you modeled, what I love are people that model good family planning. Sure. Because, well, and there's a ton of science. Bandura Sabido uh, is the model on what mostly, when coercion works, it doesn't really work. But obviously the one-shot policy had a huge impact. Sure. 400 million people were prevented from existing. But that's not the way you want to do it. The, the one way that the other way that does work significantly is role modeling mm-hmm. and uh, the population media center role models, good family planning. Okay. People are really susceptible to role susceptible is a crazy word to use, but it is the word uh, mm-hmm. for, for how we change family planning. So if you're modeling good family okay, planning yeah. Yeah. In, in some ways that's much better than okay. not modeling at all. Oh, that's so nice of you, Carter. Yeah. <laughs> I feel better now. <laughs> but you're, I mean, to your, to your point, those, okay. The, the graph you would show it's, the problem is at first existential. Sure. It's not practical. Yes, those people are doing things. They're choosing to consume animal products. Some people are choosing not to consume animal products, but their existence precedes that practice. Hmm. And that's what all these animal rights people missed. Sure. And that's why Paul Ehrlich is better for animals oh, than Singer. Peter Singer. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and that, that is a controversial claim, my friend. <laughs> well, <laughs> I might fight you on that one. I really like animal liberation. I, I mean, conceptually, the book, I should say, I like, I like animal liberation as yeah. a concept, but uh, the book is a great book. Well, like, so it, it begins, you said, we say what you said, mm-hmm. you, you, we, you came out with a, a phrase about a belief you had that began with we, mm-hmm. everything begins with we, and that is the determinant for the outcome more than whatever we decide to do. It's who we are. That has that determines the outcome. So while all of the people that are converting people to vegan food products think they're having an impact, they're not. Mm-hmm. The bigger impact is who we are becoming. Yeah. Because if we arc towards ten billion mm-hmm. as opposed to four billion, given that very few people will become vegan, you've just decided animals' fate, yeah. not based on diet or consumption, yeah. based but on based on who we are. Yeah. yeah, and you, I'll, I'll end by saying this: I think the, our fascination with consumption is because we talked about you might have a political system like a democracy where people participate uh, because they're free and equal. Uh, and if we don't have that, what do we have? Well, we have an economy where people are economic units, where they're either workers, consumers, taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Um, so we think of things in terms of consumption to make change because we're not part of a democracy. Awesome. We're part yeah. of an economy and we make change because we're consumers. We're not citizens who yeah. have a real effective voice. Yeah. So I, I mean, it's sad that we're often on, on in this direction. But I think honestly, if you believe in law, and certainly if you believe in animal law, you've got to go look at how you, the hell you would create a system yeah. like the ideal uh, without accounting for, for the people in it. And those people don't fall from the sky. They're yeah. born and raised. People can, that don't look at that have now their ignorance over the past 50 years and their failure to bend the curve. People that were like Singer, who had three kids sure. and was milk toast on population at best mm. and completely got the model wrong. Um, we're looking at catastrophic costs sure. because of their failure of the past 50 years. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't want to, now I've been ranting, but I, I think the simple point is you're not going to get to practical justice without existential justice. Yeah. And this is a complete blind spot for us over the past 50 years. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really powerful and elegant way to put it. We see consumption as a source of change. 
Because we're consumers. Because we're not. <laughs> we don't have democracy. Yeah. We don't have democracy. We were so built we this way. We see consumption because we don't yeah. have democracy. I think there's a lot of truth in some of the levels that same. All right. We've been going for a while, my friend. Uh, I, I've got to get going somewhere, and I'm sure you're a busy guy. I really appreciate the time. Any last advice you'd give to people who care about change, either in their personal lives or as activists? I mean, what, what have you learned over the last 20 years of jumping around everywhere from homeland security to defending open rescue activists? I mean... Whatever time you have to give and whatever skills you have, you can turn those towards activism. Mm -hmm. It's not a binary thing. And also, I mean, the, the perfection is the enemy of the, of the good. So do what you can with whatever skills you have towards the passions that you, you are driven by. But of course, the, the rule should be that they further the self-determination of others, including yeah. the compassion that would do that. So I, and for, for me and for many, that is done by ensuring that future generations are created uh, with equal opportunity and a restored natural biodiversity and modeling mm -hmm. small families that redistribute resources to give kids equity is the way to do it. So yeah. thanks for having me on, Wayne. I really appreciate it's, it's it. It's a worthy utilization of your skills, my friend, and I'm glad you're doing the work. Thank you. Thank you, Carter. Appreciate it, and, and uh, I think everyone in the audience will too. Thanks Thank so you. much. Hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Thanks to Carter for coming on. Thanks to all of you for listening. I, I really do appreciate all the feedback, the comments on Substack, uh, the comments on Facebook and other social media. Sharing this obviously is really, really important. I'll say as always, if you can rate this podcast, comment and give it a review on whatever platform you're listening to it on, that would be super, super helpful. It'll only just take a minute. You might even just stop and do it now. Ready? One, two, three, go. <laughs> uh, but I want to thank everyone who's involved in the podcast, Ronnie Rose, the co-executive producer, Shalom Lafakis, who I think is going to be editing this podcast, Dean Rizikowski, um, Julie Waldrup, Catherine Benz, so many people have helped out. And um, I haven't done as good a job about getting feedback and questions from all of you, but there is a WhatsApp chat that we've created if you're interested in giving feedback on these podcasts and maybe proposing some questions for guests, because I really want to make that part of the process of podcasting that more people, including you, have a chance to ask these questions and record a question or send a question in writing by email or in a comment that I can pass along to some of these guests because they have a lot of wisdom to share. And you have a lot of questions and wisdom that I want to include in these conversations. So if you have a thought or question about this podcast, or if you're interested in asking questions of the guests yourself, please um, just send an email, respond to one of the Substack emails. If you're not on the Substack, it's a Simple Heart Substack. It's how I circulate this podcast by email. Go to the Simple Heart on Substack. Just Google the Simple Heart or Wayne Shung Simple Heart, and it'll come up, and we'll add you to the WhatsApp chat, and you'll get a chance to chime in and offer some feedback yourself. All right. Thanks, everyone. Until next time. Bye-bye.